So just about everybody thinks they have a pretty good idea on what victim mentality is. And I would argue that it's kind of treated almost form of like hypochondria, right? Someone that is always claiming to be sick when they're not. The major difference though is while hypochondriacs really have no value to a political movement, people with victim mentality have an incredible value to a political movement. And so what we're going to do today is we're actually going to discuss the concept of victim mentality, of victim perception fallacy, what you need to know and understand about it so that you can properly identify it. And you can also identify the various institutions and movements which are pushing it within our society and why they're doing it. And like I said, as much as I think we all have some understanding of what it is and why people doing it, you're going to be surprised with the video that we share right now on just how per pervasive it has really gotten and the ways that it works and probably the most frightening, what it can actually lead to. So we're going to discuss all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers. I think there are going to be some great conversations that we have in our community chat right after this episode. We have a whole channel that is built just for conversations about the podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts on it. If you aren't a member already, go down to the link in the description, join our community chat, introduce yourself, and we'd love to get to know you there. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. We'll see. We'll see what happens next Tuesday. Right. We'll see. Uh, But other than that, I'm I'm a reasonably okay guy. And someone who might confirm that is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Yes. You're the okayest guy. Oh, look at that. Check that out. Right. Top tier. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Then we also have our resident historian, political prognosticator and mostly benevolent warlord in training. Christian, how you doing, Christian? I'm doing well. I'm going to love this episode because- it's I'm the one who Hines. found this niche channel and then showed you it. <laughs> you, that's true. Nick that's and I have true. like poured through so many of these this guy's videos. He we does, need, he we does need to rename him Master Hines. He's <laughs> Master Hines. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. For, for all of our live stream folks, you may not see me today. I'm still having some technical difficulties and I'm getting worked out, but it's great to be here. Nick, you, your election is next Tuesday, right? Just yeah. want to give everybody some clarity on that. Yeah, yeah, next Tuesday. Okay. What I say. Okay. No, you said Tuesday. I was hoping you'd tell everybody just oh, okay. very briefly yeah, yeah. about next, it. Next Tuesday. Yeah, next Tuesday. Elections all here in Virginia. Nice. The entire General Assembly up for re-election. We'll see what happens. Should be interesting. Uh, for those of you wondering why Hamilton doesn't have a camera, we're punishing him. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know why, but uh, he'll, he'll get it back when, when he's earned it. Yep, yep. <laughs> we'll see. No, that's that's not at all what happened. But um, anyways, let's jump into this. I, I want to um, introduce everyone. We, we did this a while back where we did a, uh, an entire episode dedicated toward going over a video called Right Wing Backlash uh, with a channel uh, called What If Alt Hist run by Rudyard, who's a great guy, does a lot of great research, really appreciate the work he does. We've since been on his podcast and he's actually, yep. we're actually going to be doing an interview with him. Um, which we'll be releasing a little bit later on, uh, probably this year, maybe. Yeah, and his podcast is called Common Ground. Yeah, he has a podcast called Common Ground. He has a channel called What If Alt Hiss, but really interesting. Well, anyways, as Christian pointed out before, um, Christian pointed out this this channel, uh, and the title of this is called Mentis Wave. And he actually talks about a lot of topics that I think our audience would be really interested in. So when you get done watching this, maybe go check out his channel. I I think you'll really appreciate the work he does. But um, he had this this video called The Victim Perception Fallacy, How Misconceptions of Victimhood Are Destroying Civilization. 
And so I, I watched through this and I was just really impressed. It's about a, about 22, 23 minutes long. And what we're going to do today is we're not going to go through all of it, but we're going to go through most of it because I, I want you to go and, and actually check out his channel and check out this video for yourself. But we're going to talk about some of the points that he brings up and have a discussion as we go along and hopefully take questions and uh, review some comments from the audience as we do it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and take a look at this video from Mentis wave. Occidental College in California is considering instituting a system for students to report so-called microaggressions perpetrated against them on campus. Microaggressions are statements that are Whoops. Hey, internets. When skimming through various political and social hot-button issues, you may have come across the following statement. I feel oppressed, therefore, I am oppressed. Which then begs the question, just how deep does the rabbit hole of fraudulent victimhood go? The answer, as this video will show you, is, unfortunately, a lot deeper than you might think. A person who has been victimized is someone who has had something done to them unjustly, generally without their consent. Justice in this case is to simply undo that which has been done without that consent. For example, say someone commits the crime of stealing your smartphone. Basic justice for you would be that the thief, once caught, should have to return that smartphone to you. Most people would also agree that the thief should also pay something additional for the trouble they caused, such as paying a fine to compensate everyone involved for the inconvenience, and also to disincentivize theft in the community. This dynamic forms the core basis for law that exists in just about every functioning society. However, there's a small issue. Sometimes people claim to be a victim of a crime that did not actually occur. On a surface level, most people by the time they have reached adulthood understand that not everyone who claims to be a victim is actually a victim. Most people. Anyway, this happens because the status of being a victim necessarily confers upon them a level of power over the alleged perpetrator, which unfortunately means that either a cowardly individual can attempt to indirectly attack someone by falsely claiming victim status, or a delusional individual can throw a wrench in the concept of justice by believing themselves to be a victim of something that is completely a figment of their imagination. Whenever something grants power, there will unfortunately be an incentive for dishonest or desperate people to seek it for reasons that go against the purpose of that power. Sometimes fake victimhood can so right the there. Form. So stop right there. One of, one of the things I, I appreciate about what he does, and he does this in, in uh, I think pretty much all of his videos, is he defines his terms up front on what victimhood, what like legitimate victimhood actually is. And again, we don't want to diminish someone that has actually been a victim of a crime or abuse or anything like that. I mean, obviously the the goal of a society should be to prevent victimhood as much as possible in the first place, but to the extent that you can, or to the extent that it happens, um, the, the real focus of a criminal justice system of anything else should be about attempting to make the victim whole. And so you saw what he did. There's like, if someone steals your iPhone, right? The, the idea of a just society is one where we come in and, you know, we, we provide compensation to the victim, to the extent possible. But then there's additional penalty penalties associated with that because you didn't just steal the iPhone, right? You didn't just cause an inconvenience of taking away the iPhone for a period of time. You, you caused distress with that person. You might've caused, you know, losses in other ways. Plus we all have to pay for a police force, a justice system and everything else, which is then going to find you, prosecute you, et cetera. And so there's additional fines associated with that. And part of what that, the, the justice of that is again, putting the emphasis on making the victim whole, first, not the state, 
the victim. And then the other component of that is creating disincentivizing conditions so that the, the potential benefit you get from stealing something is, is nowhere near as bad as the consequences for if and when you get caught stealing that thing. And then, so he, he does a good job of explaining that. But then the second component of this is, is explaining something. And, and that's the idea of how this then gets manipulated uh, for a variety of reasons, how people then use victimhood, because once again, there's there's a natural inclination. I think for for most of us, unless maybe you're a you know sociopath, there, there's this this idea of yes, if someone is victimized, we we want to do something to again assist that person. They they automatically um, they automatically occupy kind of a privileged position within society, which is you know appropriate unless it starts being manipulated. And he starts to go into a little bit more about how, you know, some of the obvious manipulation is if you have victim status, people are, are generally, or society kind of in general is attempting to cater toward your needs in that, that moment, both for the reason of bringing justice to the victim, as well as an overall understanding that we, we can't, we can't successfully live peacefully and, and have a prosperous society if we allow certain people to go around victimizing others, right? But because that conveys a status and because that status can convey power, there's now a perverse incentive to manipulate victim status for your own benefits. Um, let's go ahead and hit the next part. Of petty revenge after a breakup or failed romantic relationship, where one person falsely accuses the other of some form of abuse. And other times it can take the form of cry bullying, where instead of directly bullying someone, a bully will falsely accuse their target of being the harasser as a way to harass them by getting sympathizers on their side to gang up on their target using lies and manipulation purely for a sadistic pleasure and the feeling of power the cry bully gets from manipulating others. Another example would be grievance grifters, people who claim to find something offensive when they in fact do not actually really find it offensive at all. They're just pretending to for the purpose. Okay. So the part I want to talk about here that I, I think was interesting is when he talks about the, what, what are the cry bullies? Is that what he described it as? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the idea of people that under like the, the people who are the actual bullies um, going around and claiming that they're the victims. There, there's a really interesting, Oh my gosh. If you want to see, kind of a disturbing um, a disturbing video on this. It has to do with Evergreen State University. What um, happened to Brett Weinstein? Yeah, what happened to Brett Weinstein? What happened to, I think that his wife too, mm -hmm. who's also a college professor there. James Lindsay talks about this. But you you talk about what happened there and, and the behavior of these students on this college university. And, and Evergreen... Evergreen has a reputation for being kind of out there, right? Some one of the most far left bastions of academia in, in the U S right. It, it makes Cal Berkeley look tame at times. But um, the reason why I thought it was so interesting is when he talks about this manipulation of victim, not just to try to get power to get out of something or whatnot, but for truly sadistic purposes, it's this idea that once someone um, that, that someone who is, is directly victimizing other people will for very sociopathic and sadistic reasons, then turn around and use popular sentiment against victimhood to pretend that they're the victims. Right. And then it almost gives them this privileged status as they're victimizing people. And I, I don't, I think most of us can see how that happens in modern society. Right. I now. think most of us, especially if you're, you know, especially if you're a younger millennial or a zoomer have actually probably directly experienced this from somebody before. I know like firsthand interacting with people 
for ideological reasons, usually on the left, who claim harassment and then use that false claim of harassment to then harass their ideological enemies. So a, a, a very popular example of this actually is, quite frankly, a lot of the reporting staff at the New York Times and how they treated um, the woman who runs libs of TikTok. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think of or or the Washington Post for that matter. Think of Taylor Lorenz, oh my the gosh. the deranged quote unquote reporter who spent years, literally years, like harassing this woman. And then the second that there's any sort of pushback whatsoever, it's I'm going to claim victimhood status myself. Yeah. yeah. And then you you look at like her tweet history, and it's it it just it reads like somebody who's suffering from extreme cognitive dissonance, but. It's actually they're, they're actually not suffering from cognitive dissonance. It's actually in some ways it's it's a strategy that exists even outside of politics. Like, for example, what, what Mentis Wave just described here is something that that I've seen people employ even in completely apolitical situations. Mm -hmm. Think about like a dysfunctional family or think about a, you know, overly, uh, you know, obsessive like you know, HOA executive or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Like, yeah. like there, there's so many examples out there that you can think of where, you know, kind of doing this bait and switch when it comes to, you know, victimhood or grievance or, 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 you know, claims of harassment or anything like that, where, where you turn it around, you flip the tables and then suddenly you, you leverage your claim status of being a member of the oppressed class yeah. in order to engage in oppressive actions yourself. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, I think one of the most common, um, one of the most common, I mean, th this is an, this is kind of a form of gaslighting. It, it's, and, and this has become so prevalent now where somebody will do something that they know that they know is going to result in, in some degree of, of societal backlash. And then somebody will, somebody will identify it like, oh my gosh, this is, this is going on. And their response is, no, that's not happening. And then, well, no, no, here's the evidence. I, I know it's happening. Right, because understand what's going on at that place is that people are still engaging in what they consider to be an honest conversation. Right, they they identified something that was happening. They were told it wasn't. They assume that the other person is just ignorant of the fact that it's going on, and so they produce evidence because that's that's the natural process in an honest discussion. And then they come back and immediately start to attack that person for being divisive, for for presenting the evidence. It's or like for being crazy for keeping tabs. Yes. Like how dare you keep tabs like that? Yeah. Oh, it's it's kind of like oh, obsess much, right? Exactly. Like, it's kind of like the. I mean, you can you can even see it. How many shows do you see where there's someone cheating? The other person sees something on their phone, and they're like, "How dare you look at my phone?" Yeah. How dare you violate my privacy? Right. <laughs> As I was violating my wedding vows. Exactly. Yeah. But it, but it is it, it's a it is a form of of gaslighting. And again, I think some people get into it because they got caught. Right. And then other people do it for even more sadistic reasons, which is to say that they, they set out to do it. And the problem that w when he talked about this, what it really illustrated for me is I used to think that some people were like, OK, they just got caught. And so now they're resorting to this. Now I wonder if they're already thinking two or three steps ahead. And it's like, well, we're we're first going to claim it's not happening, even though we know it is. We're going to claim it's not happening because that's just the first step to this is hide, cover up your actions. And then the moment they produce evidence, we're going to turn it on them and act like them getting the evidence that we essentially asked for by saying that it isn't going on is some form of divisive behavior or obsessive behavior well, or bigoted or mean behavior. They're employing the age old, age old thing where they say, you know, deny everything. Make counter accusations. Yeah, admit nothing, deny everything, make yeah. counter accusations. Yeah. You know, the last thing that I want to bring up before we resume the, the video is 
this reminds me a lot, like like some, some of the tactics and stuff like this, and we're probably going to get into this a little bit in, in the future, but this reminds me a lot of the GSR stuff yes. that we've talked about before in the right-wing backlash video. Yeah. GSR is is gossip shaming and rallying. Those are um, three strategies or approaches that, um, quite frankly, the the left has weaponized in order to to win the culture wars. And and this is something that Rudyard talks about in his video on the right wing backlash, where there, are in some ways, like feminine tactics that 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 exist in places where you know violence is not necessarily an acceptable use, um, you know, to to adjudicate differences. So. Instead of resorting to violence or the threat of violence, you resort to gossip, shaming, and rallying in order to to basically coerce people to act a certain way or to believe a certain thing or to repeat a certain thing mm-hmm. in order to get your way. And when anybody disagrees, you you completely destroy them with those three those three um, th- th- those three approaches. The problem is is that, and we've talked about this on our um, episode on the personality pandemic. The problem is, is that when you engage in GSR style uh, tactics to basically coerce people to do or say or act however you want, quite often there's there's a backlash. And at the very end of this um, article that that I read off or that we read off at the very end of that personality disorder pandemic episode, there was it was a journal article, and and the person who wrote it actually described that conservatives at first recoiled when those tactics were applied to them. And then eventually they just stopped caring. Yeah. Well, and, and Henry, Henry Booker in the audience says, question, are these said victims the same ones that garnered all the participation trophies of a decade ago? And, and it's, and it's interesting. All right. I think it's kind of said uh, maybe tongue in cheek, but maybe also a serious question is that I do think that feeds into it because one of the things that you see with victimhood mentality, and they're going to get into this a little bit is concepts of narcissism. And, and sometimes narcissism gets treated as if it's just a, it's just, like something you're born with. Well, no, that this can also be learned behavior. Um, and, and so, yeah, the idea of constantly telling people that they're, you know, and, and again, we've, we articulate before, it's one thing to tell somebody, yes, you're, you're, you're special, you're unique, you know, you're made in the image of God. You, you are entitled to a certain degree of respect just by virtue of being a human being. And then there's something else by telling something that everything that they do and every impression that they have or idea that pops into their head is beautiful and wonderful and creative because their self-esteem right. is paramount. And it's like, you, you, you shouldn't wonder that that creates a certain degree of narcissistic tendencies. And then you add this victimhood mentality to it and it gets even worse. But I have one more thing I yeah. wanted to add to that because I think there's another facet to this where um, people are being told constantly that things aren't their fault. It was an accident, so it's not your fault. And we taught our kids differently. We, we said, this is your fault. We understand it was an accident. You didn't mean to do it, but it's still your fault. Yeah. And so this idea that you are the one responsible um, even when somebody wrongs you, you're still responsible for what you do with it. You're still responsible for your reaction to it. You, you may not have, um, warranted whatever treatment you got, but you are responsible for your part in whatever you do next. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I think that people are not taught that way anymore. They're taught that if, if I didn't mean to, then I'm totally off the hook. It was an accident, yeah. you know, and, I think that um, that is just one facet for this with, because there's a lot of people who do this unknowingly. They don't even realize they're doing it. It's not necessarily nefarious. They just don't mean, they don't even know they're doing it because they've been taught. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, resume the video. 
Another example would be grievance grifters, people who claim to find something offensive when they in fact do not actually really find it offensive at all. They're just pretending to for the purpose of either clout or just dogpiling or another form of crybullying. And then there's also the case of people claiming that they should be given trillions of dollars for reparations based on exaggerations and misguided notions of collective guilt and collective victimhood, often from crimes that allegedly happened centuries ago and may or may not still have any kind of impact today. And of course, there are those who just flat out suffer from persecutory delusions and the victimhood mentality, those who make being a victim a central component of their personality. And lastly, there are people who perceive themselves as victims purely because they have been told that they are victims, and thus they interpret anything bad that happens to them as a component of oppression that they have been told to see. Normally, all of so yeah, we're, we're going to, he goes into this a, a lot more that that, that other part that people that believe they're victims because they're constantly told that they're victims. This is the one that I think has become one of the most common in our society now is that when, when you break down all of society into oppressor or oppressed, another way to break that down is victim and victimizer. Mm -hmm. Well, if those are your only two options, you're going to choose victim. Right. Because who wants to be a victimizer? Right. Who wants to be the person that's actually perpetuating victimhood? They're the bad guys. Yeah, they're the bad guys. And, and you we want to be the good guys. And we want to be the good guys. <laughs> and so it's this idea of it. And, and what's crazy about this is when you tell one group that just based not based on anything that might have happened directly to them or even their immediate family or anything like that, because obviously if something has happens to someone close to you, you, you can also say that, yes, I'm, I'm affected by that. But now we're talking about things that, that may have happened decades ago, centuries ago, may not have happened to you directly, but you share certain characteristics with somebody that it did happen to. And, and this person over here shares characteristics with somebody that perpetrated the victimhood there. So you're now a victim by association and they're a victimizer by association. Well, you're, you're creating an incentive structure now to where it's, I better find some way to get into the victim camp because that's the camp that actually has some sort of moral credibility within society. And, and it's amazing how that's being, that's being pushed now. Um, and the it's, further it's back you behavior. go, the further back yeah. you go, the more who the victim is ends up shifting. It's like a lot of these groups kind of want to stop at a certain point and they don't want to continue down that rabbit trail. So the minute you start blaming, uh, somebody for whatever their ancestors did or whatever their, their predecessors did. Um, it, like I get it if they're continuing to do it, but if yeah. they did not engage in this themselves, you're basically just establishing a multi-generational blood feud. Yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite part of the, um, the left's endless railing about colonization and colonizers and settlers is for some reason they have a really hard cutoff date around the seventh century AD. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they don't, they don't, they don't seem to look any further back than that for some, for some really weird reason. I think something kind of came out of the Arabian Peninsula in that time frame. but, um, the, I, there's I, a joke that'll go over most heads. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about the Islamic and Arabic conquests. Um, there you go. There's the answer to the joke. But, um, Nick said something at the very beginning of this podcast that, um, I, I, I want to like focus on just a little bit more, especially in, in, um, based on what we just played here from this video from Mentis Wave. The whole it's learned behavior. Yeah. It's also a social contagion. So yes. a lot of 
And, and the reason that it's it's important to emphasize this is twofold. One, first off, a lot of people think that this is directed. It's not directed. Go go and watch our previous videos about understanding like neo-reactionary thought processes and stuff like that. The concepts like the cathedral, we call it we call it the Leviathan because the original concept of the cathedral was just media and academia. Yeah. And the Leviathan is all of the institutions that the left has ideologically captured. But when you when you look at our previous episodes on on those topics, one of the things that you learn from walking away from that is that it's actually, it seems like it's directed. It seems like it's a conspiracy, but it's actually a social contagion. It's the exact opposite of a conspiracy. It's an organic process. What we've created through society is we've, in, we've created a culture where it, people are incentivized to find ways to identify as being part of the oppressed class. Yeah. We've created incentive structures, perverse incentive structures that encourage people to do that. So for example, we wonder like how on earth are 13 year olds and 14 year olds today coming out and saying they're trans. That was not a thing when I was growing up when I was 13 yeah. or 14. And now it's, it's like a pandemic. And you had a conversation with some uh, people in Northern Virginia that were involved in politics recently. And somebody brought up like, I don't understand why this is happening in schools. How could this be happening? I'm, I'm still, I'm so stunned by this. And then you responded, Nick, with, um, actually, I'm surprised that not everybody in public schools are falling into this. Yeah. And the reason that, that I'm bringing this story up is because what, what I'm trying to get across is, is that what we have right now are a set of perverse incentives within society that are encouraging and rewarding the multiplication of victimhood mentality, even when there is no such victim. Mm -hmm. So like, obviously there are some people that are, you know, murder victims, rape victims, people that suffer from, you know, property theft or like those are legitimate victims. Yeah. That's why we have a criminal justice system. But usually we, we actually have a criminal justice system that tries to minimize the number of victims, right? By, by punishing perpetrators. What we have within society right now is a, a, perverse social contagion that's spreading around that's encouraging the multiplication of of victims which is why you get scenarios where again if you're older than the age of 30 you remember 13 year olds weren't asking yeah. for their genitals to be chopped off 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago why is this happening now like there's a reason why and it's not necessarily because it's it's a conspiracy it's because again we have a a social contagion going on. Well, they would argue though that those previous kids were oppressed into repressing that yeah. feeling yeah. and they were, uh, what was it? Conversion therapied out well, of it. it. It's it's the whole concept of an un, uh, an unfalsifiable claim. Like we, we can't go back and actually prove whether or not somebody really genuinely actually felt that way and it just society pushed them in a different direction. And, and it's also good to ask the question that there are certain thoughts that enter into the mind of a child that we're not supposed to reinforce because they're wrong. Right, and oh, I, let alone put them there. Yeah, or at put this them there point, in the first they're place. They're putting they're them there. They're planning the ideas there. Yeah. Well, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, like, look, like I said, there, there are, there are obvious times where, um, you know, th there's legitimate victimization and whatnot. And there's times where, where people have, um, you know, suffered at, at varying degrees. And, um, and again, the, the whole idea is to look at a problem and to potentially overcome the challenges associated with that problem. And one of the organizations that does a great job of, of overcoming problems is good ranchers. That's right. Because if you have a problem, 
right now with not having enough good quality American raised beef, pork, poultry, or wild caught seafood, well, that's a problem you need to overcome and you need to look for an organization that is actually going to work with you to make sure that you get the very things that you need. And Good Ranchers does an excellent job of this. We want to thank them very much for sponsoring our show. And if you use promo code Nick, there is a new deal that is coming up right now as part of their overall Black Friday special. Right. And that Black Friday period of time, it's not just one day because Good Ranchers is generous like that. All right. If you use promo code Nick, you're going to get $15 off your order. And do you remember a while back when if you ordered a subscription, you got free ground beef with every order? Every order that you had on that subscription, well, now it got better. better. It got, I would argue it got significantly better because yep. as good as Good Ranchers ground beef is, now they're offering you a choice, right? Once again, you as a consumer, as a person with agency over your own life, you now get to go to Good Ranchers and you can choose what sort of free meat you want. You can choose top sirloin. You can choose wild caught salmon. You can choose organically raised chicken breast or... You can choose bacon. That's right. The thing that you wrap everything else in to make it even better. If you go to ranchers.com, look at one of these subscriptions, promo code Nick, $15 off your order. You get to pick, right? Pick the free meat that will come with your order as part of your subscription. You can save up to $480 if you, on top of the $15 if you order this subscription. Plus, if you are wondering, if you're going through that process right now that I go through every year where I'm like, what the heck am I going to get people? What am I going to get people for this gift giving season? Well, now good ranchers have gift boxes because once again, they're just, they're just here to make sure that you're taken care of. So as good a job as good ranchers does taking care of us on the show and making sure that we can continue to come here and do that. This is a great way to support the show. It's also a great way to support your family and show that person that special someone that you really love them with a gift of meat. Yeah. So Promo code Nick, $15 off your order. <laughs> order one of those subscriptions and uh, get an additional $480. Tina's looking at me like with a not nice look right now. She thinks that might have been an inappropriate <laughs> advertisement. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and get back to this before I get into even more trouble. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the, the overall the overall point here is is we're, we're we're watching something where it's not just deliberately being weaponized by certain people. Right. So you've got kind of like your your narcissist that says, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm doing it on purpose because I'm going to use it as a weapon to punish people that disagree with me. Then you have someone that, you know, maybe they don't even really realize it. All they know is that they're growing up in an environment where society has been separated into victims and victimizers. And you don't want to be a victimizer because again, society rightly says that's, that's bad. And so you're trying to figure out some way, how do I, how do I move? Especially if you're, if, if you're a victimizer or an oppressor by virtue of immutable characteristics that you can't change, you're a man, you're white, you're heterosexual, right? Oh gosh, you're, you're responsible for all the world's evils now. And, and how do I, how do I get out of that? And to your point earlier, the group I was talking to, as I said, stop being surprised that so many kids are making this decision. Start wondering why more aren't because if they've been told you're evil and mean and oppressive, if you, if you, if you look this way and the only way to get out of it is to claim some sort of new gender identity or some sort of new sexual preference, which now moves you into the, the victimized group right now at, at the very least, maybe the only benefit you get is no longer being an oppressor, but that's pretty significant, especially for a young person in an environment where the social cues they pick up, the social, you know, the status they have socially among their friends is very formative and, and uh, makes a huge impression on them. Um, let's go ahead and, and go ahead and resume the video. 
have been told to see. Normally, all of these examples of fraudulent victimhood would have straightforward solutions to prevent the justice system from being perverted by all of the clownery. But there's one very big problem that stands in the way of that, which is that the subject of fraudulent or mistaken victim status is often horribly misunderstood by some of the people who are supposed to be experts in the fields of psychology and social science, leading to grave mistakes being made in how we interpret polling data, how findings are reported to the masses, and how related research is often conducted with a major error baked to their methodology. This error that I am referring to is what I like to call the victim perception fallacy, which is the tendency to drastically overestimate the reliability of self-reported perceptions in regards to persecution and oppression, resulting in unreasonably high levels of trust being granted to those claiming victim status. And the reason why this fallacy is such a huge problem is actually pretty straightforward. These self-reported perceptions of persecution and oppression, victimhood and whatnot are actually extremely unreliable. The average person- Okay, so just to make sure everyone's on the same sheet right here, what, he, what he's talking about is very important because a lot of the studies that you see that are utilized in order to justify you know, our, our modern day victim Olympics um, are, are based off of self-reporting. And so <laughs> you, you can imagine here where there, there could be a problem with an objective scientific research where uh, uh, let's just say a significant portion of your data is based off of someone not just self-reporting something that actually happened to them, but their perception of what happened to them. So when, when we get in, he's going to talk about this a little bit more. When you get into the world of microaggressions and stuff like that, if somebody says, where are you from? And you perceive this to be a microaggression against you because maybe you're a racial minority within the country. Now, when you're asked, have you ever been a victim of racism? you will list that as evidence. And because they're not going back to actually question whether or not that, that was, it's just self-reporting. It's like, oh, we'll see look, the number of people that are reporting being victims of racism as a result of, again, they don't necessarily dive into the data to say, okay, was this someone that actually did something like really bad toward you and very, very blatant act of racism? Or was this someone where somebody asked you, oh, where are you from? Or where are you from originally? And now all of a sudden, nope, that gets that gets thrown into the, the container of racism under a microaggression. And so the more the more studies that you use that use that sort of methodology in order to make an argument that victim status is a, a far bigger concern and a far bigger problem than you might otherwise perceive it to be, he's pointing it out that there's there's problems itself within that methodology. You mean you can't trust the experts? <laughs> Well, they constantly change the definitions. Yeah. I mean, color me shocked. <laughs> I, by the or, way, I love the, the clown world meme that's up on the screen. Yeah. Right yeah. Or, or that, or that the experts might have motivations outside of just getting to the, the, the raw truth of, of what's actually going on. Go ahead and play. Tell whether their failings are the result of their own poor choices in life, or if they are the result of some kind of invisible systemic oppression that is victimizing them, is very, very low. To the point of, well, near zero. So how do we know this? Well, let's take a look at a few studies that show just how bad people's perceptions of this is. With the first of these just being understanding what a victim mentality is in regards to psychology. At the core of victimhood is the phrase, this is not my fault. And this is a very attractive thing for the average person to believe in. To the point where we actually expect each other to shift blame because of how common this happens. For instance, a study on the effect of admitting fault versus shifting the blame on expectations for others to do the same. Go ahead. Okay. Um, can we, can we actually back that up just yeah. a little bit? Um, 
Yeah, the red, yeah, red for uh, that's fine. Go ahead. And, I want to read this off for our audio. Well, go go forward where you can actually see the. Uh, there we go. Yeah, go go forward to that. Um, so for our audio listeners, what's what's on the page here? It says, "What does a victim mentality mean?" And then in quotes, it says, "It's not my fault." Someone who acts from a place of victimhood claims that things happen to them are the fault of someone or something other than themselves. It might be the fault of their partner, family, coworker, friend, or the way the world is. They frequently complain about the bad things that happen in their lives but they are reluctant to take personal responsibility, asserting that the circumstances aren't in their control. And this is pretty important for two reasons. Um, one, if you, if you give into what they're describing as a victim mentality, then it's the idea that when, when things happen to you, even if they happen repeatedly to you, um, it's as if you have no control over your own circumstances. And, and I would argue that this is one of the areas where when people point out to someone Hey, you know, is, is there anything that you did or is there anything that you were a part of that may have actually contributed to, to what happened to you instantly? Victim, like how, victim shaming, victim how, blaming. yeah. How dare you in game in victim shaming or victim blaming? Now I will say this, anybody that says that because someone, because maybe somebody was doing something or they weren't making the best decisions with respect to how they behaved, that therefore they're, they are somehow um, guilty or overall responsible for what happened to them. I don't agree with that, but I, I do have this problem where when somebody says, Hey, if, if you, if you engage in certain behavior, the probability that something bad will happen to you increases exponentially. That's not me engaging in victim blaming. And sometimes people will come back and say, well, oh, so you're saying I'm not allowed to do X, Y, and Z because someone might hurt me or steal from me or assault me or whatnot. No, what I'm saying is, is that society is not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Certain behaviors or actions carry with it, you know, a higher degree of probability that something bad will happen. Now, does that mean you shouldn't be able to do that thing um, lest someone hurt you? I don't know. It kind of depends. Like there, there are certain things that we talk about in society, certain traditions or codes of conduct that we have put into place, not simply to prevent bad things from happening, but because those sorts of behaviors are bad in and of themselves. And oftentimes bad behaviors lead to other bad results. It's like they want to remove all the layers of protection uh, for people and then wonder why the, why they were hurt. Um, but you know, this doesn't, it doesn't address, and I will, I want to caveat because obviously there are a lot of people who truly have been victimized and there are really um, un, involuntary responses to certain types of victimization. So for instance, if a child has been sexually abused or molested, they will oftentimes have things that happen to them later in life involuntarily um, that link them back to that. It's like they, like there's, uh, something broken in the wiring because they were being, it's like everything was being wired in as they were a child and something broke as they were putting it together. And this is not what we're talking about. No. We're, we're talking about situations where society has like pushed everybody out there to behave in the worst ways possible and then turn around and, and act like victims as a result of their own decisions. Yeah. The arc of history is long. But it bends towards the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> he's gonna, every chance he's going to trademark that. He's going to copyright every that. chance I get to say that phrase. I'm going to say it. The, the, the reason I bring that up and and this will be the last thing that I say before we because I definitely want to get through the rest of this video. The reason I bring that up is because, again, we've 
we, we live in a society where bad behavior is openly encouraged yeah. in part because quite frankly, the left monopolizes bad behavior in order to attain political power. I've said it before that like the worse off a person or group acts in society, the more praise the left lavishes upon them because usually the left preys on people that are dysfunctional mm -hmm. either through no fault of their own or because they willingly choose to become dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Um, so like the people who become narcissists, the people who become drug addicts or the people who become just, just the, the dredges of society, like the left preys on those people where, whereby give us political power and we will give you something in return. Either we'll give you some sort of wealth. We'll give you some sort of status. We'll give you something that you, that you usually don't have. And the right doesn't really have anything to say in response to that because the right believes in meritocracies, whereas the left does not believe in meritocracies at all. In fact, the left despises meritocracies because a meritocracy is inherently a hierarchy. And the left doesn't believe in hierarchy, which is very ironic because it actually, they actually do believe in hierarchy. But, um, at least they claim to not believe in hierarchy. So the, the reason that I bring this up is because if you want to under, it, it's, it's important to understand why some of these bad incentive structures exist, because once you understand why they exist, you can start to address the problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, start here. Talking about alleged group systemic oppression. Now, people who are not convinced yet that the victim perception fallacy is a serious problem might bring up the fact, well, hey, wait a minute. Those are just people who are deliberately trying to avoid responsibility so that they don't get punished for their bad behavior. And narcissists are just people who suffer from a personality disorder and are not good representation of humanity on average. Well, as it turns out, there have also been studies on average people and how they perceive oppression. And uh, spoiler alert, we didn't do so hot. <laughs> One study that particularly stands out is perceptions of the impact of negatively valued physical characteristics on social interaction. Now, what these absolute mad lads did was they took people and placed them in a social interaction and then led them to believe that they were being seen as superficially inferior in the eyes of a person that they were interacting with, in some form or another. For example, they were led to believe that the other person thought that they had allergies or epilepsy or some other negatively valued trait for the time that this study was conducted in. Now, the kicker here, of course, was that the person they were interacting with, in fact, did not actually believe this and was treating the participants the same regardless. And yet, the people in the study who were misled perceived that they were being mistreated or otherwise treated differently by said person, even though they were not. So this perception of oppression or mistreatment only existed in their minds. And this has some really interesting implications, because it means that someone's belief that they are a victim of invisible oppression does not necessarily need to depend on any real evidence. Pause right there. So there was actually a, another study that was done that was fairly similar to this. So what, what they did was they sent somebody in as if I think they were going to like a job interview and they, they created some sort of um, like physical, like scar or something like that on their face. And so, so the person knew that they were going into this interview with like a scar on their face or some sort of, again, physical marker on there that would maybe be considered not desirable. And then right before they went into the interview, somebody would come over and be like, oh, let me just touch something up real quick. And they'd remove the scar, right? Or they remove whatever, whatever it is they put on their face in order to, you know, take it off. And then they would send them into the interview. So the person is now going into the interview thinking that they've got something on their face, but they don't. They'd go through the entire interview and then they'd come out and they'd ask them a series of questions on whether or not 
they thought they were being discriminated against in the interview based off of like the facial scar or whatever it was. And they found that there was a high degree of probability of people saying, oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, definitely. I could tell when they did this, when they did that. Well, again, the person interviewing them didn't, there was no scar. They couldn't see, they couldn't have possibly been engaging in discrimination based off of that characteristic because it didn't exist during the interview. And, and it, it illustrates this point that when you, when you set somebody up to believe that something exists, they start becoming hypersensitive and they start assuming that otherwise innocent things are an indication of that discrimination. This is how you get a scenario where an entire generation of people have become they, they weren't necessarily born narcissists, but they became narcissists and, and, and not just narcissists. They've, they've become obsessed with viewing all of society through oppressive power structures. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, be, because of this study, like, I mean, I was about to ask you the question, like, okay, so what does this mean in the context of like, you know, the cultural war or politics or something like that? I think he kind of hints at it right there that like human beings are predisposed to, be biased towards basically pattern recognition, even yeah. if there's not a pattern there. And, and I mean, you could argue that that actually saves us in many cases, right? I mean, pattern recognition is actually important. This is how you don't walk into the wild and get eaten by a snake or something like that. Right. Yeah. But like, you know, in, in our modern 21st century day-to-day -day social interactions, this like false pattern recognition is what encourages this, this this social contagion it's it's what encourages people to view themselves as victims even when they're interact like here's an here's an example and maybe it's actually a bad example um based on <laughs> some of the comments i've seen in some of our youtube videos but nick knows the story and i'm gonna say it even though it's it's uh, slightly embarrassing for myself when i worked in the general assembly with you um you know exactly where I'm yeah, going. Yeah, it is. <laughs> when I when I worked in the I, so spoiler alert, I used to work in the General Assembly with Nick. That's how long I've known him. Yeah, uh, he and I, you know, worked on his campaign together the first time, and um, we were not productive at all. We, I, or at least I was not. He was. He actually <laughs> voted on bills. I didn't. Yeah. But um, okay, so so when I worked in the General Assembly, I interacted with a lot of other legislative assistants because I was one yeah. myself. And legislative assistants in the General Assembly probably lean more towards the female side than the male side. It's probably more like 55, 45 female to male is my guess. It might be 50, Maybe 50, a little bit. But no, I think it's actually at least a on our floor. More than that, yeah. On our floor, I, there, was, uh, there was definitely more women than men. And so I would interact with a lot of women on a day-to-day -day basis. And I uh, did not have a long history of interacting with women up until that <laughs> point. And so by the end of that first year... Nick was having a conversation with me and he was like, yeah, a lot of the uh, female LAs think that you're sexist. And I was, I, I remember where I, like, I remember where I was sitting at the time. I remember the room. I remember everything about that conversation because I remember being so stunned, like genuinely stunned. Has anybody ever like told you something and you, j that was yes. just the last thing you were expecting. Yeah, and yeah. you don't know how to respond at that point because you absolutely we're not expecting that at all and i i was like that when when you told me this because that was the last thing on my mind i was like how could i be a sexist i was i remember being offended by it actually well it's because you you would treat them exactly how you treated the men yeah. and women would think you were treating them badly yeah. um 
and that you didn't normally treat men badly. And that's not the case. He just equally treats well, I, all of yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> here's the thing is, this is, here's the thing about women. And I'm going to say this and there's going to be women that are going to be mad at me, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's absolutely true. Women don't want to be treated just like the guys. Women want to be treated in a special, more careful way without figuring out that that's how they're being treated. They want to <laughs> think they're being treated just like the guys, but they don't really want to be treated just like the guys. Well, here's, here's what I'll say. What was interesting about that conversation is when I was, when somebody brought that to my attention and they said, well, I, you know, I, I think Christian's kind of sexist. I was like, and I was shocked too. And I said, can you, can you explain why you think that? Like, oh, well, you know, he interrupts me a lot. He doesn't like, he'll, he'll treat my opinions with disdain. And I said, <laughs> can I tell you something? Yeah. They're like, he, I am his boss. Like I control his paycheck. He interrupts me and treats my opinions with disdain. So I just want you to know, <laughs> I just, I just he, want you to he know. He is an equal offender. Yeah, it is equal when, opportunity. When offender. Christian is treating you with, with the exact same level of respect that he treats most of humanity, which is not a lot. <laughs> no, but it, I mean, we're, we're, we're bagging on you a little bit, but, it, but it was funny. And it, it, it also illustrated a point where somebody could be in an environment where they think the motivation is one thing when in reality, it's something very differently. Um, let's, let's go ahead and, uh, Return to the video because we got a couple more points here, and I want to get into um, something else that he says that is pretty important, or a thing that he brings up. Go ahead. If we are led to believe the oppression exists somehow, or the negative stereotype against us somehow exists, we will find evidence for it regardless of reality. This flips a lot of the power dynamics we see in everyday social interactions way on its head. If a person expects to be mistreated in public, they will often perceive that mistreatment as happening even if it is not actually happening. Which brings up a very interesting question for people who are always claiming to be oppressed, especially those who've been told to think this way because they arbitrarily belong to some kind of subjective group. Are they really experiencing this invisible oppression, or are they simply seeing what they have been told to see? Now, the reason this confusion happens is actually pretty simple to understand, and it all comes down to a really basic flaw in how human perception works. People, as it turns out, are not mind readers. At the end of the day, we can only make guesses as to why others treat us the way that they did. The reasons are completely subjective, and for the most part invisible to us because, again, we can't read their minds. We can only guess. And so what people do is they make those guesses based on their various presuppositions, at least in regards to how they think others are perceiving them. In other words, this proves to us that perceptions of victimhood are to some degree rooted in psychological projection. A person who believes that they are a victim, for whatever reason, will project that belief onto others and then read that into any behavior which is directed towards them. Whether or not any prejudice of any sort actually exists or not is irrelevant to their perception. And the cherry on top of all of this, interestingly enough, is that cathedralites have no problem accepting the fact that this is true, but only when talking about groups of people that they do not like as there have been a number of partisan studies on how the other party is so easily convinced that they are a victim when their victimhood totally doesn't exist, but our victimhood is totally real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and you see this, um, you, you'll see this sometimes when the left talks about the Christian right, you know, like, oh, the Christian right is so oppressed in America and the whole deal. And yeah, by, by comparison, um, you know, when, when you look at um, the, the tolerance for Christianity in the United States versus the tolerance for Christianity in other areas, obviously there's there's no way we're dealing with this sort of a oppression. Um, by the same token, people are worried about, okay, what's coming in the future? And perhaps the other side could argue the same thing. I, I do want to mention one other thing about this because the whole mind reader component and something that you brought up, people operate off of heuristics. 
which is which is like a, a mental shortcut that you take. And and to give you an example of this, um, when you're deciding what you want to eat for dinner, you don't have complete knowledge of all of the potential food options that might be available to you, or the quality of the food, or the price of the food of it. You don't you don't have perfect information on all of that. So what do you go off of? Well, you you go off of what you know you like, what you've experienced in the past. You you go off of what maybe a trusted friend might recommend. And then you make a decision. You make the best decision you can based off of the available information, right? And then those shortcuts, those shortcuts that you use to reduce your options to something that is manageable, right? And, and to, to Christian's point, this also happens with pattern recognition within society. This is, this is something that has been built into us for survival, Right. Obviously, the, the first impression that you that you have of something is in informing your decision making process, first and foremost, from a threat component and, and then from a, a variety of other decisions that ba- are based off of your preferences, understanding what you would like to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why I point that out is Google. Google did this entire training course on unconscious bias where they were trying to explain to all of their employees about how they were actually secretly a bunch of, you know, horrible racists with all these presuppositions about society. And then you look at some of the examples they gave. I I, want to say one of them was a, a man who brought a mannequin and a bottle of vodka onto the subway and was screaming and yelling at this mannequin. And as he was doing this, people were starting to move away from him. And, and then he, he starts like shoving the vodka in the, the mannequin's, you know, mouth saying, you know, take a drink, take a drink. And more people start to get up and move away. And, and I kid you not, they looked at this and they're like, you see all the poop people moving away right now, right? Their unconscious bias is that this man potentially poses a threat. What if, what if he's just doing something for like an acting skit or a drill that he has for <laughs> And you're looking at this oh going, hey, dumbass. <laughs> Is it within the realm of possibility that this dude brought a mannequin onto the subway in New York City, started yelling, screaming, and showing, shoving vodka because he's practicing for a skit he's going to do? Yes, it is probable. But based off of what we no, know possible, about not possible, 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 it is possible. But based off of what we collectively know about subways and some of the things that happen in, in these, you know, urban areas in subways, is it far more likely that this guy might beat somebody to death with the leg of a mannequin because he's clearly mentally unstable, right? So a smart person who apparently did not put together any of these examples for Google would look at that and say, yes, I, I suppose, I suppose it is technically possible that this guy is doing this for an acting class, but it is far more probable that this guy is, is bat crap crazy and is, and is potentially going to hurt me since he outweighs me by 50 pounds and appears to be inebriated, right? But no, no, Google wanted to use that. Google wanted to use that as, as an example of, well, see, see the unconscious bias that you're utilizing right now. Um, no, that that's called common sense. Not only that, but like if they're trying to get people to take a step back and go, maybe I'm misunderstanding the situation or whatever, what are they doing? They're causing people to now look at abuse toward women as possibly understandable. (laughs) possibly understandable. So maybe we should just kind of pump the brakes a little bit before we put this dude in a headlock and drop him to the ground. Yeah. No, 
No, I'm sorry. You go into public and you start acting a fool and being absolutely crazy and looking like you're abusing a woman. No, every man on that subway should never have stepped away. They should have gotten in between them. Like that's embarrassing. So now we need to ask, why is this happening? And I think that we're actually almost at the point in the video where, where Mendes Wave explains from his perspective, like why this is happening everywhere. Because we ask ourselves like, why are the executives at Google? By the way, I love that he called them cathedralites. So that means that he knows he knows the neo-reactionary logism, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, um, neologisms, which is uh, quite interesting. Um, because like, you have to ask yourself like, why are the executives at Google trying to persuade their employees to throw all forms of heuristics out the window? Again, nuance is a thing. Some some topics deserve nuance. But heuristics exist for a reason. Pattern yeah. recognition exists for a reason. If you were to indoctrinate a bunch of people into ignoring the crazy man on the subway with the mannequin and and simply project, oh, he must be acting for a script, you're going to get a lot of hurt people. In fact, you might get yeah. a few killed people if, if you encourage society to ignore acts of blatant Obvious mental illness. indicators. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's what, a clear red flag. Yeah, it's, it's, it's because this is when you take anti-discrimination all the way to an extreme. Because every time you make a decision, you're discriminating. Yeah. Every single time. And what they want you to do is, no, you need to approach every single situation as if you've never seen something like this before. You know where Google would never do that? With respect to analyzing the performance of their programmers. There you go. If their programmers showed up to work every single day, if the people writing code for Google showed up to work every day, like, well, gosh, I don't want to assume that the the code that I did yesterday was going to work like it did today. I don't, I don't want to assume that, you know, um, I, I don't know, like, you know, binary is, is going to work. I, gosh, I can't, I can't assume that the things that I learned, you know, that, that I have been applying toward writing the code that makes Google work. I can't assume that that's going to work tomorrow. They would never accept that they'd fire you. But yet when that same programmer gets on a subway, they're actually teaching them to, well, look, don't potentially get up and move yourself to a position of safety, or maybe put yourself in between somebody that might be vulnerable to to a person that's going nuts on the subway, right? Because that would be displaying unconscious bias. That would be an unfair discrimination. And then when that Google programmer gets beat to death, the people writing this code are never going to be like, oh gosh, maybe we bear some responsibility for telling people to behave in an insane manner when analyzing a situation in, re- in the real world. I'm really sick of all these social experiments too. Oh like, cause they gosh. do them all over the place and you see these little videos and they're just, they're absurd. Before we go forward and answer the question that Christian had proposed, we've got two super chats I want to get to right quick. This one is from Eleven Bravo, who said it's far easier to take responsibility than it is to assign blame. I've gotten out of more trouble by owning my actions than by making excuses. That is true, and I would say that is that is true in healthy societies, yeah. and it's true in healthy organizations. And and what's the problem now is, and we see this all the time, where for instance, when they they found stuff that Matt Walsh said when he was like a, a he was a shock jock at one point, and they found stuff that he said, and they came out and they're like, oh, you better apologize. And and legitimately, some of the stuff that was said might might have been bad, right? And Matt Walsh got on there. He goes, I'm not apologizing to you for anything. Because one of the things that he's recognized about this mentality, and this is something James Lindsay talks about in the whole concept of the struggle session and American Maoism, is this idea that apologizing does not get you out of trouble. 
with the people that are pushing this sort of mentality. Yeah, there's uh, no forgiveness. There's no redemption in cancel culture. No, no. Uh, ap- apology is just you, you know, presenting your own evidence that you're guilty and now you're going to be punished further. You're going to be required to do more. And this is like an endless regression. And and so we have created a situation where it, it is ridiculous because 11 Bravo is right. This should be a situation where when somebody says, you know what, that's a good point. I was wrong. I'm going to fess up to that. The, the response from the rest of society should be like, you know, we appreciate you for, you know, coming clean or admitting that this was wrong and, and, and trying to do something better. But that's not what's happening right now because the purpose is not redemption. The purpose is the accumulation of power. Let's go to the other um, comment. Yep, we got another one from Michael here. He said, I noticed that unlike in the U.S. and Europe, predominantly Germany and Austria, they have a post-oppressor mentality when they are willing to excuse migrants' evils because Germans and Austrians still feel guilty about World War II. No, I, I think it's a, it, it is, it is interesting that when a, so for, and for instance, like there's almost nobody, there's almost nobody left alive in, in Germany or Austria that was part of the Wehrmacht during World War II, right? Like, I mean, let alone like the SS or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those people are, are, you know, predominantly dead. So we're, we're not talking about people that perpetrated the atrocities of the Holocaust or, or something like that, but there is this, they're all in Canada now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Getting recognized by Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's interesting how there, a society will carry a certain level of guilt. Right. And, and sometimes, um, a, a certain level of, let's just say awareness, because I, I don't believe that an individual has to be um, guilty for something they didn't do, but they should still be aware when their society or when their culture or when their government perpetrated an atrocity, right? That, and that's, we see that in the United States where we look back at some of the things that the United States government has done. Um, and we say, yeah, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened. And, and what, what is the sort of reconciliation that takes place? What's the lesson that is learned so that you can move forward? And that can be a positive thing provided that it's actually viewed within context. But when all of a sudden it gets used once again, as a bludgeon to encourage people to do stupid or irrational things, it doesn't actually lead to greater healing within society. In fact, it can have the opposite effect where it ramps up the sort of behavior that you wanted to prevent in the first place. All right, let's go ahead and can we uh, jump ahead to- um, I, w- I will our- say this. Can I just say, I think the best way to radicalize people against another people group is to focus on the oppression of, of the past. That's how you get people that are willing to put on an, a, a vest and go blow themselves up in a bu- building is by radicalizing them uh, with all of that kind of, rhetoric from the past, you know, and well, like everybody needs to pay. And he actually makes an interesting point on this. Let's go ahead and, uh, anyways, the point that is proven here is the main problem with the victim perception fallacy perceptions that one is the victim of mass prejudice and oppression are completely independent of any verifiable state of oppression. This means people's self-reported data in regards to whether they face discrimination or not should rightfully be seen as the lowest possible form of evidence for said prejudice and discrimination, if it is to be seen as evidence at all. But of course, none of this is really that big of a deal. Because, of course, all the experts trademark, working for the corporate media and so-called academics working on their next prestige-seeking virtue signal disguised as academic research, would surely never make such a colossal blunder as to take self-reported perceptions of oppression at face value and hold on to them as the primary evidence of what they are reporting, right? I mean, that's just such an obvious mistake, so of course they wouldn't do that. 
They're totally doing that. <laughs> and the weirdest thing about this is that what I have said so far in regards to psychology doesn't actually go against the academic consensus. There are many other studies which show that people are bad at mind reading when it comes to alleging some form of discrimination. If someone has these presuppositions or otherwise preconceived notions that they are the target of some kind of mass social prejudice, they will read that prejudice into all of their everyday interactions and will see it everywhere regardless of whether it exists or not. This is a well-known psychological problem with how humans think and yet it is often ignored whenever people want to push an oppression narrative you want to pause there all right i, I want to look at this chart because this was another thing and they ask a very important question here because sometimes I, i've heard this where I, like i've heard in other areas where we talk about things like uh welfare spending or we talk about the way welfare spending is organized and that it actually encourages people to not improve their own conditions and people will look at you and be like you honestly believe that somebody's going to settle for the penance that they get on welfare rather than actually improve their lives and the answer is will everybody do that no will some people do that absolutely will the people that believe that there's no way for them to escape do it yes and this is, it's the same concept when you talk about victimhood, where people will make this claim like, you really think somebody would claim victim status? You really think somebody wants this? You really think somebody, I don't think anybody wants to be victimized, but I do think there's a lot of perverse incentives to assume victim status. And especially if it lets you off the hook on a lot of things. When this is what he goes, why be a victim? He goes, so why do people behave this way? There are some benefits to adapting a victimhood mindset. Number one, no accountability. Being accountable for your life means you're in the driver's seat. You take responsibility. That can be scary to someone who has a victim mentality. You would have to admit life isn't just the result of the actions of others and taking responsibility bursts the protective bubble of victimhood. Two, Secondary gain. Some people's problems continue because of the secondary benefits. Sympathy, attention, and access to medication or funds are common examples of secondary gain. Someone with a victim mentality might not even realize they are getting these benefits and often feel truly distressed. Three, satisfies unconscious needs. People with a victim mentality, especially when it comes from past trauma, unconsciously seek validation and help from others. They play the poor me card consistently. This can generate sympathy and help from others. Uh, five, no, four, sorry. Avoiding taking risks. Projecting blame on others is a key part of the victim mentality. It's a way to avoid being truly vulnerable and taking risks. And so if you look, especially the satisfies unconscious needs, this almost sounds a little bit harsh the way he describes it. So again, people with a victim mentality, especially when it comes to, from past trauma, unconsciously seek validation and help from others. They play the poor me card consistently. This can generate sympathy and help from others. One thing I want to say about this, there's two components here. One is the false victim, right? It's, it's the person that claims that something happened. I, I, I had a family member, um, that yes, this, this described this person to a T uh, they would claim to have been, you know, an, uh, afflicted with something that they were not afflicted with, right? They, they, they were told, Hey, you got to come in in order to, you know, an, an assure that this isn't happening or you don't have this condition. And, in, and instead of actually going in there, getting all the information and then coming out and say, Oh, you know, thank goodness this didn't happen. No, it was, Oh, I have this. And it, and it engendered sympathy. There are other people that have been victims of past trauma. And I, I would argue that there's, there's two ways to look at the, the past trauma. You can either look at it as, in fact, somebody in, in the chat mentioned something that they went through that was horrific. 
And she said, I don't describe myself as a victim. I describe myself as a survivor. Like I over, I overcame that experience and as horrible as it was, it's not a defining part of my identity. But then you have other people that will experience trauma and sometimes it can be truly significant and other times it might be more minor by comparison. And they will make that the key component of their identity. And it's almost like as if they don't know who they are without it. And more and more, you have a society, you have a, 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 a psychology industry, a psychiatry industry, which is reinforcing that. And, and this is one area where I might make some people mad on this, but I, all, all I'm saying is I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying I've always just had a problem with the way it's, it's described. But when you look at the way that certain organizations deal with addiction and they, and they tell someone and they tell them to repeat it, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't claim to be an expert, but something doesn't sit right with me when you are telling someone to make the core component of their existence, of their identity, the addiction that they struggle with. And I think it's the same thing with respect to trauma. I think it's a little misplaced because some of those things like the Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff, like I saying I'm an alcoholic, some of that is getting them to admit they have this problem. And that's why they do that is to get these people to actually admit that they do struggle with this problem. It's not it's something that they have owned for themselves. And so they obviously need to work through that. And, and I don't know, like you can, I don't know one way or the other, whether or not it's, it's good or bad to have somebody carry that with them the rest of their lives. You know, like I'm 62 years sober and I'm an alcoholic and it's like, okay, why are you still wearing the label at this point? And, and some of it is that they need it in order to remind themselves that they could go back to that at any moment because they have the struggle to go back to it at any moment. And yeah. so you, it's, it's a struggle you have to deal with every single day. And, and, and you, you regression is, is like one drink away. Yeah. And so that's why, um, I guess I differ with you just a little bit. I understand not making it your whole identity, but people do need to own the addictions and the things they have. So here's the part that here's the differentiation that I make. I'm not saying that someone shouldn't own up to an addiction that they struggle with. I'm not saying that they shouldn't own up to their actions or what they've done. What I am saying is that when somebody takes on the action or the trauma or the addiction as their identity, I am this, I am a victim. I am the, that's the part where I start to wonder what that does to someone's mentality. And again, I'm, I'm not suggesting that I'm correct here in, in my, this is, I am posing this as a question and something that I'm admitting has never really sat right with me because I, I do believe that people are capable of change. They're capable of redemption. They're, they're capable of overcoming challenges. And, and from what I've seen and, and somebody, somebody even said it right here. Um, Grant uh, Hadley said, I have two friends who are siblings and both went through trauma. One of them had the survivor mindset. The other had a victim mindset. And it's really sad to see. And so I would say like in that case, I'm willing to bet that, that both siblings owned up to the trauma, right? Or owned up to, or not owned up, but, but recognize the trauma. But the mindset that you take towards something like that has a huge impact on the way that you see yourself and whether or not you see yourself as having control over a particular situation. I would agree with that. I think I think where we got a, a foul of that is when we talked about certain types of addiction. And the only reason why I say that is because you have to get somebody to recognize that they will never be able, like somebody who struggles with alcoholism and is an alcoholic will never be able to drink 
a little bit down the road someday. It, they can never revisit it. They have to give it up forever because yeah. they have this issue with them where they can't stop once they start. And so I think I think the motivation here is to get them to recognize that you can never go back to this. No, and I, and I think that's fair. I think the, that's the fair. The perversion of this in the political context, though, or the... Let's be honest, the woke idiots out there that, that you know, put their pronouns in their bios, bra- actually in many cases, like brag about their mental illnesses online, use them as almost like Pokemon where they got to catch them all. Like it, there's in the political context, there's a really, really negative. I don't know what I don't know what to call it. Pernicious. There, 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 there's a very pernicious trend within a political context of people on the left using labels and then building their identity around those labels from a political context. So for example, I believe that, that uh, James Lindsay once said that, you know, to be queer is to be political. Mm. Like all the other labels on the LGBTQ thing could just mean something. You could just be gay, but, have you know conservative views you could be a lesbian and have conservative views or be a libertarian or whatever but to be queer is to be on the political left Hmm. it's it's a political label it's actually it's it's you it cannot be separated from from left-wing identity politics which is why you get things like queer theory they don't call it lgbtq theory yeah they don't call it lesbian theory or gay theory or homosexual theory or anything like they call it queer theory yeah and that's an explicitly political label and the reason I bring this up is because what the left has, I think, done a really good job of is kind of weaponizing labels, taking words, applying them to themselves and saying, I am this, attaching some sort of like moral good to that label, usually in the form of victimhood status, and then going to the rest of society and saying, because I am this and because this is good, therefore you owe me X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing too on why to be a victim, when you when you look at these four categories, I think these are the sort of things on, on why to be a victim within a, a normal, healthy society. And and by that I mean this is the sort of perverse incentive that just exists as a result of a society that again gives deference to victims in an appropriate way. But when you have an unhealthy society, which again breaks down society into oppressor, oppress, victim, victimizer, you now create a whole new set of incentives to be a victim. It's no longer about just just no accountability or secondary gain or whatnot. Now you can actually go into that category because you're trying to avoid being classified as a bad person. And you are owed special treatment because you you now have like the trump card for dominance now. You yes. can you can basically establish dominance in any conversation with your victimhood status. And, and your your intersectionality score shoots up tremendously. And and when we talk about intersectionality, again, we're, we're talking about this idea where what we, what we sometimes disparagingly call the victim Olympics, right? It's this idea that a, a, a black man has experienced um, oppression, but a black woman has experienced more oppression by virtue of being both black and a woman. But then a black trans person has experienced even more oppression by virtue of being black and trans. And then it, it there's kind of almost like this endless regress of if you want to go up the, the, the intersectionality chart, then you have to start chalking up traumas. And you can watch people one up each other on this, having conversations oh where they're like, well, this happened to me. Oh, you think that's bad. This happened to me. Yeah. And 
and you get to the point where now that person is the dominant one and everyone else has to make allowances for that person. You know, you, you've got this issue. So we're all going to make sure that we don't accidentally trigger one of your issues. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, hit play again. Which means it's now time to move on to showing the victim perception fallacy in action. Starting with the most obvious example of this stupidity, microaggression studies. <laughs> so microaggressions are a term coined by a Harvard professor about 50 years ago, Chester M. Pierce, I believe. It was originally used to describe a phenomenon between whites and blacks, but eventually evolved beyond ethnicity to include just about every identity group you can think of. No, really, if you don't have enough grievances to grift off, you can just invent a new identity group these days if you want. Yeah, welcome to 2023. Anyways, microaggressions represent the idea that small, often unintended interactions can cause unintended offenses and hurt feelings through casual disparagement. Sound confusing? Well, here are some examples of known microaggressions to clear things up for you. Interrupting a protected class member. Complimenting a foreigner on their ability to speak English. Asking where someone is from in casual conversation. Believing in meritocracy. Not being colorblind and acknowledging that someone might be a minority or might be a foreigner. Alternatively, being colorblind can also be a microaggression. <laughs> failing to acknowledge that someone is <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I want to read You're some have of to these. to go back like five seconds. No, no, no. I want to read some of these off because it, it's funny. Like, so these are listed as micro microaggressions, right? Um, where are you from? Where were you born? Um, you speak good English. A person asking an Asian American to teach them words in their native language. The, the message here is that you're not an American and you're a foreigner. Can I just say, like, I, obviously, tone, inflection, a lot of other things can, can actually impact this in, in such a way where you can tell when somebody is asking an honest question and someone is being a jerk. Now, when when I when I've been overseas, like this is one of the interesting things about the United States is because we're we're such a a heterogeneous society, uh, we have a great deal of diversity within our population more so than a lot of other places in the world. So when I was in the military, I spent a lot of time in Asia, and when when you go to South Korea or you go to Thailand or you go to Bangladesh, you're you're primarily seeing people who are Korean, Thai, or Bangladeshi, right? And and if one of them would have said to me, "Oh, Nick, your your tie is excellent," I would have been in, incredibly, um, I would have been incredibly complimented by that, and I also would have thought they were lying to me <laughs> because you know, sorry, kap kun ru is about the extent of my tie at this stage. Um, but what's what's also here is now you can look at some of these others where it says you are a credit to your race. Yeah, if someone said you are a credit to your race, I'm looking at it as like, dude, that's that's probably that actually might be maybe not a microaggression, but that just might actually be, be don't aggression. say that. Yeah, don't that, say that's, that. That's not a good thing. That's the one good example they've got here. It, here's another one where it'll say the theme is ascription of uh, intelligence, assigning intelligence to a person of color on the basis of their race. So they're saying like a, uh, a, a like a white person saying to a racial minority, "You are so articulate." Like that's a microaggression. Okay, not necessarily. Like, couldn't it be a situation where I just noticed that another human being is articulate and suggests that they are articulate with no sort of racial undertones associated? I'm not allowed to say that Thomas Sowell is very articulate. No, you're not, you racist. Um, what's another one? Uh, when I look at you, I don't see color. <sighs> America is a melting pot. So America being a melting pot is considered a microaggression because it says uh, denying a person of color's racial ethnic experiences, assimilate, uh, 
acultural to the dominant culture, denying the individual as a racial cultural being. Uh, there's only one race, the human race. So uh, telling somebody they don't see color is just dumb. Yeah. That that previous one, that's yeah. just dumb. Well, but that's, I, it's denying reality. It's like, no, we see it. We appreciate it. Let's, you know, let's appreciate our differences. Well, it, it, the, the issue too is once upon a time saying we should be a colorblind society was considered the appropriate liberal thing to say. Now you're oh. a white supremacist for saying it. Well, I yeah. mean, look at look at how language has changed now. You've got people of color, which is incredibly, incredibly close to colored people. But it's like, it's it's so weird how we've come full circle. It was like, no, it's it's African-American. And now it's, no, it's people of color. Yeah. And and I don't understand coming full circle like that with just like a few little nuances in the language. Yeah. And it's it's like, can't, I don't know. I look, just, I went off this crazy train, please. Well, look at this. I believe the most qualified person should get the job is considered a microaggression. <laughs> yeah, well, he did say, Mentis Wave did say, believing in meritocracy, yeah. being colorblind. Likewise, not being colorblind. Like a... a <laughs> Remember when I read off that like the ability to hold mutually contradictory you know positions is not a detriment to the left; it's an asset. Yeah, diversity is our strength. <laughs> like like you you get to expand Diverse the pool. Yeah, you get to expand the pool, um, and your quest to achieve political power if you hold mutually contradictory views, because you could just interchange them depending on the circumstances. You can say, you know, oh, it's racist to to try to push colorblindness, but then you can likewise say it's racist to view things from a color, you know, perspective. So it, it just, you should not, at this point, in the year of our Lord, 2023, <laughs> you should not, you should not be surprised when the left espouses mutually contradictory positions, sometimes yeah. in the same conversation. Yeah. Well, and in five minutes, the things they say are the appropriate thing to say will no longer be the appropriate thing to say. Mm. And and so it's like you have now latched onto their lingo. And as soon as you do, they change the lingo. And now you're mm -hmm. racist for using the lingo they came up with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's just it gets to the point where now we just avoid all these conversations. We just avoid it all because no one knows what they can or can't say anymore. And no one wants to offend anybody, but everyone's offended over everything. Yeah. <laughs> all right, go ahead and hit play. Better work on those mind reading skills, mate. You wouldn't want to accidentally offend someone now, so better work on those psychic powers. Get to work. Uh, all kidding aside, if this all sounds pretty subjective to you in that anything and everything can be considered one and it's all pretty indistinguishable from the same day-to-day -day crap that everyone deals with, well, you would be correct. And as you can probably guess from the subject of this video so far, a lot of the studies that claim to prove the existence of microaggressions do indeed heavily rely on the victim perception fallacy as their main source of evidence. One particular paper, a revised racial microaggressions taxonomy, did a review of several microaggression studies. All the ones I looked at either A provided absolutely no objective evidence whatsoever and simply expects the reader to take what they are saying at face value, or B they commit the equity fallacy instead, or C you guessed it relied entirely on self-reported perceptions through ma lived experiences of these microaggressions. <laughs> With the most common methodology being taking extremely small sample sizes, interviewing them about their victimization people. perceptions, and then presenting their findings <laughs> as the primary evidence for their totally authentic papers and totally not ideologically driven 
and masturbatory virtue signals disguised as honest research. They feel oppressed, they report oppression, therefore they are oppressed. Don't ask questions. Blind test to make sure these people aren't just projecting their insecurities into the world? Nah, we don't need to do that. Now, beyond microaggressions, more examples of the victim perception fallacy can be found in just general identity politics and the grievance industry as a whole. But go ahead and go ahead and keep. I know we're we're kind of falling a little bit behind, so I'm going to keep going. But uh, yeah, I, I love <laughs> I, I love the idea that he's he's going back and pointing out that a, a lot of the a lot of the microaggression disciplines, if we can even call them that, are again rooted in what appears to be very very poor research. Um, of, of people just saying, well, this was my perception. And so therefore I've been, I've been a victim of X, Y, and Z. And, and this is a, a like a constant feedback loop, right? Like you, it, again, you're, you're creating this unfalsifiable thing. Cause as long as you can find one person that say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I was a victim of this. Well then, oh, see, look, validating all of our, our findings. I, I love that some of these studies that are like validating, you know, the victimhood mentality yeah. have a sample size of 12 yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. uh, you we asked 32 people at the sociology department in Berkeley and they all I, agreed. I want a special study done because like my best friend, Susie Clancy's in the chat and she is, uh, she commented saying that, that she, her mother tried to abort her and where is her advantage for that? Like she was a victim of that and a victim of various other things growing up. Where is her advantage? And the unfortunate answer is since you are on the right, you get zero advantage. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, you're a traitor now because you're on the right. Oh yeah. This is, this is not some sort of objective standard for which anybody can, can receive some sort of relief. This is to be selectively applied when the left finds it beneficial to the accumulation of power. And it's a trade-off. Yeah. You only get to, you only get to partake in the, the left doesn't hand out power and wealth for free. No, it's a, it's a deal with the devil. You have yeah. to give something in return, yep. AKA your absolute political loyalty. Look at how the left treats racial minorities or women who don't yeah. identify with the left. Look Traitor. at how they treat yeah. Thomas Sowell. Look at how Tina was treated when she ran for office as a Republican. Look at right. how the left treats those people. Nick and I can get away with it because we're both straight white men. We're supposed to be the bad <laughs> we're guys. We're already evil. We're supposed to be the <laughs> bad guys, yeah. but, but like. Yeah. If if you're a if you're a racial minority or you're a female, you're any of these other groups, right? Now you're an Uncle Tom or you're a traitor to your gender or you have internalized misogyny as a woman. You only get to partake in enjoying the benefits of your status of being a member of the oppressed class, although I would argue that none of these people actually are oppressed. Um go to go to Gaza if you want to be oppressed as a as any of these any any of these so-called groups. But like the, you only get to partake in benefiting in your status of being a member of the oppressed class, if you if you render homage to the left, it's yeah. it's it's a, it's a modern twenty first century you know, version of feudalism. You only get to, to partake in the benefits of feudalism if you bend the knee to the king or the emperor, right? <laughs> now back to your turnips. Yeah. <laughs> All right, keep going. But before I go into these, I need to point out an inherent problem of circularity that is present in how our society addresses victimhood. Mainstream media will report to the masses that Group A is being oppressed. Group A will then interpret things that are happening to them through the lens of victimhood, since the media told them, and thus some of them will start to see this oppression around them, regardless of whether or not it exists. Researchers then collect these self-reported perceptions of victimhood from Group A and then report them to the media. Do you see the problem here? By taking these perceptions at face value and assuming them to be be completely valid, rather than understanding that it is low-level evidence at absolute best, a single exaggeration could potentially lock a society in a circular trap where they will see oppression everywhere around them regardless of whether or not it exists. As long as the victim perception fallacy is taken as primary evidence, this circle has no way to break. 
Yeah, this is this is what I was talking about before about the the whole feedback loop, right? So again, just to just to kind of like reiterate this, the media reports certain things. A target group see these see it may be a racial minority, it may be part of the LGBTQ community, it may be women, whatever it is. They report that they're victims. You're victims, and you're undergoing all this victim mentality, right? Then that target group members within the target group will see like, will will feel that victim uh, uh, oppression or using the victim perception uh, fallacy. They will start to look at things that are happening to them in their lives through the lens of, well, I'm a victim. And so this must be a microaggression or this must be this, the seemingly innocuous question is actually a secret tool of white supremacists to hold me down. And then what happens? Well, the social scientists at the university ask those people, Hey, have you ever been a guilty? Have you ever been, um, you know, a victim of these microaggressions. Yes, they, oh, yes, I have. Oh my gosh, well, we write a study. Goes back to the mainstream media. They, well, a study just found that X, Y, and Z. And so without any sort of like hard data, and keep in mind, they don't want the hard data. It, it's it's not as it's not as if the social scientists that are sitting around researching this are desperate to come up with truly objective ways to to research this in order to determine if it's true. Right, they get value on it being true, whether or not it is, and so the incentive structure is do the sort of research that reinforces the narrative you're trying to get. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody within the social sciences is doing this. In fact, there's been other reports that have come out that are based off of far more objective analysis, things that any human being can take a look at and analyze and, and come to rational conclusions over that destroy this. But that doesn't prevent the social scientists who, who believe that this is their mission to expose this from being able to do this. So it's, it's this feedback loop that, that continually happens. Remember when I said at the beginning of this podcast that, you know, we have a bunch of perverse incentives in society that encourage the creation of more victims mm -hmm. or self-identified victims. Yeah. It's, it's actually a little bit more nefarious than that. And he's hinted at it here, the media and academia, especially academia. So literally the cathedral is, is the one that's actually driving this. Yeah. And you brought this up in a previous episode. I think it was actually the the literally the previous episode on Gen Z that we did, where you laid a lot of the blame on on some of the problems that Gen Z has or ha, or are suffering through or the mentality that Gen Z has fallen into um, at the feet of academia, the people who who raised and taught these kids yeah. X, Y, and Z. It, it really is this vicious feedback loop where you have academia teaching this and doing the you know scientific studies on this even though they're complete bs and then the media reports on this as fact and then pushes it effectively as a form of propaganda in order to to make everybody aware of it and yeah. normalize it so to speak normalize this right i mean the, the left wants to normalize everything now if you actually go to reddit you know exactly what i'm talking about normalize x y and z like and X, Y, and Z will be usually terrible things. Yeah, they're like normalized pedophilia. Well, okay, only some people on Reddit will push that, but it, usually it'll be, you know, normalized, extremely self-destructive behavior and actions that will lead to the crumbling of civilization. Again, you know, zombie apocalypse stuff, right? Arc of history. But the reason I bring this up is because if you want to know where this is coming from, it's coming from the cathedral. It's coming from, or the Leviathan, whatever you want to call it. It's yeah. coming from the media and academia. Those are the drivers behind all of this. And I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense. I mean it in the sense that, um, I can't remember who, who wrote it once, but somebody once pointed out that, you know, Montesquieu thought that he was a genius when he believed in separation of powers as a way to check the drive towards tyranny. 
but what happens when the judges and the legislators and the executives all go to the same schools? Yeah. <laughs> what happens yep. when they're all taught by the same people? They will then work together. You can't have separation of powers where competing branches check each other when all the competing branches, it operates more as a fan rather than a bunch of interlocking gears that are, that are you know, you know, creating gridlock. The fan is circulating all the different, you know, the blades of the, of the fan aren't, you know, checking each other. It's not gridlock. Instead, it's twirling around and it's pushing us towards tyranny. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, again, we think that, oh, well, you know, we have separation of powers or we have divisions of, of powers in order to prevent the accumulation of, you know, in order to prevent a drive towards tyranny. But when all of the people that work within the executive branch, work within the legislative branch, work within the judicial branch, all believe in the same worldview and it's all a false worldview and it's a worldview that preaches the accumulation of power in order to achieve an end state, then we shouldn't be surprised when government accumulates power. There's a reason why we've been driving towards catastrophe, I would argue. And it's because Quite frankly, it all lies with the source of where are they getting, where are they becoming educated? The problem lies with, with some of these cultural institutions that the left has has intellectually hijacked, and until you you start addressing that problem, we're never going to fix it. Remember when he when he um when Mentis Wave said here that, you know the, it, it it's a triangle right, and it's a it's a feedback loop, and unless something interjects to break it, you know, to break up that feedback loop, you're never going to fix the problem. Well, you know, one of the corners of that feedback loop is academia itself. Until you break the left stranglehold over academia, we're never going to solve this problem. Yeah. No, I agree. All right, let's go ahead and uh, continue to play. That can be found when you look at the consequences of the victimhood mentality. There's a saying out there that men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Well, as it turns out, you can probably replace religion in this statement with victimhood, and it would actually be more accurate. The first problem is that people who fall for the victimhood mindset gain a sense of entitlement and often partake in selfish behavior. This was pretty well documented in the aptly named study, Victim Entitlement to Behave Selfishly. They did a few different experiments to confirm this, but I found the last one, Experiment 3, on claiming a bigger piece of the pie to be the more interesting one. In this experiment, they had people play a computer game which was rigged up so that they would lose. However, it was rigged differently for a control group. They had some people lose in a way that they were led to believe that they lost as a result of their own poor performance in the game, but then they had other people lose the game in a way that looked like they lost because of a computer glitch. In both cases, they were led to believe that they lost out on some kind of monetary prize. The participants were then asked how they would allocate money in a future game under the hypothetical scenario that they won. The people who were led to believe they had lost the first game as a result of a glitch were much more likely to give the selfish response. Now, why does this matter? Well, because of the implication it has in psychology and social interactions. Say someone believes that they are a victim, and they act selfishly in public because they believe that they're a victim, and so they get treated like crap from people because they're acting selfishly. Victim status confirmed! You see, not only does narcissism lead to victimhood, but the reverse is also true. People who are injected with victimhood can also take on narcissistic personality traits. Which just adds another negative feedback loop, on top of the already existing negative feedback loop, of the media reporting that Group A is being repressed, and then Group A thinking that they're repressed, and then Group A reporting that they're oppressed. But in layman's terms, having a victimhood mentality can turn a person into a jerk. They'll be meaner, they'll be <laughs> less agreeable, they'll be more selfish, etc, etc. No, it, 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 it's. I'm reminded of that Key and Peele skit that's completely inappropriate. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's an office sketch. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, where he's like, "Oh, I'm not oppressed. I'm just a jerk." Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, but again, you, you can almost, I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever seen that kid whose parents just completely in, indulge them in, in everything that they do? Nobody likes that kid. His peers don't like him. His teachers don't like him. Other adults don't like him. He's a jerk. And to some degree, you might have a little bit of sympathy for the kid because they haven't reached a certain level of cognitive development, especially if they're, they're younger, to understand that they're, they're, the world doesn't revolve around them because their experiences, the world does revolve around me because that, that's how my parents interact with me. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the same things within some of these universities. Again, I'd highly encourage you to go take a look at the interview between James Lindsay and, and Brett Weinstein. I think they're like four, uh, like it was a four part series where they're talking about what happened at Evergreen University. And these students are obnoxious, just absolutely obnoxious. And, and just to keep in mind, this is Evergreen State University. There is nobody at Evergreen that is a conservative. Nobody at Evergreen would ever vote for someone like me, right? like ever. In fact, they probably think Bernie Sanders is too conservative, right? But this is, and the way they were treating their professors was just horrible. And what happened? Every single time the administration gave into it and gave into it and gave into it, they constantly indulged whatever attitude the students had and it led to worse and worse attitudes. And you're going to get to a point where those kids at some point are going to leave that university, enter the world, and nobody's going to put up with their crap at some point. And, and in their minds, they honestly believe that they are victims because this narrative has been reinforced to them repeatedly by people, positions in authority. And, and it is the same as spoiling your children, except that at a certain age, you have to assume responsibility for your own actions and your own decisions. And, and at some point, there needs to be that negative feedback loop where it's like, no, if you continue to do this, you will be unhirable. You probably won't find anyone that actually wants to spend any time. You'll have no friends, no wife, no husband, no job, no nothing. And it is your fault. Oh yeah. It it reminds me of when people, I've seen people that, I mean, they'll get like all these piercings, wear their hair, you know, in like a mohawk or whatever, tons of facial tats and all these tattoos and things like that. Well, it's, it, that's a slightly untraditional way to present yourself. It's not traditional, but then they get super mad when they go somewhere and they're treated untraditionally. So, so they want there to be no difference it, it, what, how, how you treat them uh, than there would be if they walked in with a suit and tie and like perfectly clean cut. Um, and, and so when they, when they receive any kind of like, hey, that's not the dress code or whatever, they flip out. Now they're a victim because of who I am. And it's like, you did all this artificial stuff to yourself. That's not who you are, my friend. Who you are is who you were when you started all this stuff, you know, and made your face your playground. And so- it is a little bit, I mean, I've watched people do that and I'm like, don't do something untraditional and expect a traditional response from people. Yeah. Well, and, and this, it's interesting too, because he's talked about this a couple of times um, where he talks about equity fallacy. And just so everyone's clear on what he's talking about there is that one of the ways that they also use in order to justify this idea of, of microaggressions or systemic racism or systemic discrimination is what, what is called the equity fallacy. And that is, that is essentially to assert that if the outcomes are different than when one might expect based off of the demographics in a particular area or country, it is therefore due to systemic discrimination 
discrimination, racism, institutional racism, et cetera, right? It, it's not that different individuals um, or, or collections of individuals within certain, uh, like of a certain sex or a certain racial minority might have different preferences. Um, it, it has to be because society has imposed a particular worldview. And so we call this, another way to put this would be the equality of outcomes fallacy. So you, you see this all the time with the people pushing the equity side where you will say, okay, well, with equity, you want equality of outcomes. And, and that's, that's not only impossible, it's actually immoral when you think about what it would actually be necessary to achieve equality of outcomes, because you would have to take away people's individual preferences and will in order to force them into particular industries they wanted or income brackets they didn't earn or whatever else it might be. Now, what they usually fight back with is like, no, we don't want equality of outcomes. We want equality of opportunities. Well, here's the deal. In those societies, which actually foster the most equality of opportunities, which is to say that not only is there no legal discrimination against you achieving something, but they actually take proactive measures, you still don't get equality of outcomes. And so when you ask somebody that is, is fighting for, quote, equity, and you say, okay, how do you know we've achieved equity? They'll say, well, it's, it's because we'll have better outcomes, which actually reflect demographics. It's like, you can't tell me that all you want is a quality of opportunity when what you're going to use to measure whether or not that's actually been achieved is equality of outcomes. And, and yet, but to Christian's point earlier, the, the, the contradiction does not hurt their argument, right? The, the reason why they've shipped, yes, they want equality of outcomes, at least to, to a degree that would, I, again, I think would be immoral because it would require government force and coercion in order to achieve it. The reason why they're shifting to equality of, of opportunities is because that sounds better, but they're still going to measure it the same way. And if they don't achieve the outcomes they want, well, then they're going to go back and claim that this is racism or this is discrimination. Ultimately, they don't actually want equality of outcome or equality of opportunity no. or equality of anything. What they, what they want is power. And, and, and privilege. The, the right needs to stop thinking that they're dealing with people that want to have an intellectual or philosophical debate with them about what the best end state is for society and start realizing that they're dealing with a bunch of deranged narcissists who want to obtain political power so that way they can use it against them and hurt them. That's ultimately what's going on. And they broadcasted their violent intentions to all of us right after the Hamas attack when you saw the cathedral, the universities, and you saw elements of the media go out there and, and openly defend a bunch of murderous, barbarous criminals who slaughtered a bunch of innocent people at a rave festival and then went out into the streets of New York City and praised it as an act of decolonization. These are the same people that are going out there saying, we will decolonize the U.S. We will decolonize the workforce. We will decolonize Wall Street. We will decolonize your church. We'll decolonize all of society. And then they told us, they showed us what decolonization actually is. They're tell, they're, what they're really saying is we will be decolonized. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the right maybe, maybe will wake up. Actually, they probably won't. But at some point, the right has got to wake up and realize that they're, they're not dealing with people that just simply disagree on what the top marginal tax rate should be or what's the the best outcome we should get in order to raise test scores or make it easier for people to afford a home or you know draw you know how to deal with traffic in northern virginia we're not dealing with those people this isn't the 1990s we're dealing with a bunch of pathological narcissists who want to obtain political power that they otherwise would never have in a sane functioning society and they want to use that political power to hurt you that's who we're dealing with now. Increasingly, we have a generation of, of lunatics out there 
who know, know that they have no claim to power. No, this is the exact opposite of a meritocracy. It's a cacistocracy. And they know it. They know that they're not qualified to run the world or run the country. They're, They're not even qualified to tie their shoes. Like, but they know that there's a mechanism to get power. And guess what? Where there's a will, there's a way. And there is a will to power out there on the left. And they're looking for any way to obtain it. This is why you get things like queers for Palestine, right? This is why you get these mutually contradictory things where on one hand, they'll tell you don't be colorblind. And on, other, on another hand, they'll say you, you're being too colorblind. Like, and, and, then, and then we wonder like why we're constantly being gaslit. We're constantly being gaslit because the because leftists out there not not liberals but leftists out there just want power so that way they can hurt you that's all that it is somebody tweeted once that communism is when weird deformed freaks go out there and make it illegal to be a normal person and then obtain political power so that way they can punish steal and rape and brutalize anybody who stands in their way all the ideology is just window dressing and to some degree he's absolutely right We're not necessarily dealing with, you know, Bolshevik, you know, style Marxism from 1917 in Russia. We're dealing with a form of cultural Marxism that we've talked about before on this podcast. Go and look at the writings of people like Antonio Gramsci. Go look at it. Everything that has come out of academia since the 1930s, especially in the West, who've recognized that you don't use class in order to obtain political power. You use all of these other aspects like victimhood mentality or you use race and gender or you use any sort of uh, perceived act of oppression or, or, you know, victimhood status. And ultimately, what the left has concluded is that if you make enough people believe that they're victims out there, you can get them to hand over their loyalty to you in exchange for power. And all that you need to do is give them some sort of power, status, or wealth in return for that loyalty. And it's been a deal that's worked out fantastic for them for decades. The problem is, is that it ultimately leads to the complete destruction of civilization itself. And that's the hour that we're in. We're not dealing with, again, people that just want to have a debate. We're dealing with people that want to hurt you. And it's time for the right to wake up and realize that. So Sir Grog asks, dang, Christian, how do you really feel? <laughs> BT Diaz said, but that is the fringe of the left. Is it, it's not the whole pie. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so to, to, I would, I would kind of disagree with it just being fringe. So it's I, not I, the whole pie, but it's definitely not fringe. I, I would agree with that. I, I don't Here Here's what I would say is like once upon a, I, 10 or 15 years ago, I think this was the fringe. This is the legit fringe of the left. Um, all I can tell you is that I, I, <laughs> I sit in the Virginia General Assembly, which means I, I sit across from 48 of my colleagues um, who are all on the left. And, and here's what I would say. Out, out of out of all of those colleagues, there, there's I, I would argue that there's many of them that are probably uncomfortable with some of the things that are happening in the left. But when it comes to voting against it, when it comes to speaking out publicly against it, they don't dare. They fear it. They absolutely do not. They do not dare. Like, show me show me the one person that would you consider to be kind of mainstream elected on the left, like at a, at a federal level or at a state level that is regularly getting up and saying, hey, guys, this is this is a little too much. This is this is a little crazy. Again, there, there may not be, it's not like every person on the left is a member of the squad, right? Or, or a member of the sociology department of Berkeley. But can you show me any of them that are standing up and saying, this is too much? Well, like, the, ones, this the is, ones that do keep defecting. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that kind of that happens. But I, I would say that, yeah, again, there's a, um, there, there's definitely a, 
we make the distinction between leftism and liberalism for a reason is because like, I, I know people, we have people on here, we have people on our community chat who would consider themselves like left of center, but they're more liberal in the classical sense, which is to say that, um, yeah, they, they may accept a, a greater government intervention in the lives of people, right? For, certainly far more than I would be comfortable with, but they also believe in things like um, freedom of inquiry, freedom of speech. They, they believe in some element of private property rights, uh, they may they may believe in a higher level of redistribution, but they still they don't challenge the underlying concept of property rights as being a bad thing. But anybody that tells me that that the stuff we're discussing here with respect to victim mentality or whatnot is is on the fringe, let me offer you up just a, a practical example of this. In the Virginia General Assembly, right, and this is tendentially related to kind of what we're talking about on victim mentality. We had a bill that said, look, we've identified several books within our public school library system. And, and these books not only talk about issues which, which may be not age appropriate, they actually show pictures of, you know, sometimes in, in a graphic novel setting, sometimes another setting of like horrendous acts of, of sexual violence. Um, in other cases, it was just pictures or, or stories of minors engaging in, in sexual activity with one another, or in some cases with adults. And, and again, I'm not talking about, I, I'm not talking about somebody writing something down, experiencing, you know, as an experience from slavery. We're not talking about that. We're talking about stuff that was blatantly gratuitous. And the bill that we had said, we're not going to ban any of these books. We're not going to require that any of them be removed from school libraries. All we're going to require is that when you have books that meet this criteria, the school library has to keep a list, a list of these books, and they have to publish it on, on their website so that if a parent wants to see what's in the library that meets this criteria, they can see it. They can easily find it. They don't have to do a formalized FOIA request. And then if they want to say, hey, I don't want my children to check out any books that are on this list, they could do that. That is it. That's it. We got told we wanted to ban books. We got told we were in favor of censorship. And we didn't get not one of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Not one of our colleagues voted for the bill. Even not though they one, were freaking out when you were uh, when they were reading it. On the floor, they were they flipping did. They, out. They thought it was inappropriate. They couldn't believe that we would have the audacity to show these pictures. That was inappropriate and, and not not in keeping with the decorum of the house. But the, not one of them said, yeah, this goes too far. I'm, I'm voting yes. Not one. So that's the part where, where when people try to tell me, oh, this is just a fringe element. I, I am telling you whether it's fringe or not is irrelevant because as Samuel Adams said, most of the big decisions that are made from a revolutionary standpoint are not made because the majority is completely on board. It's a highly motivated minority that, that gains enough social momentum, political momentum, um, social momentum that they can actually achieve what they want. And so as I, I would agree with Tina. No, it is not the whole pie. It might not even be a majority of the pie, but it is not fringe. And I promise you, they are leading the narrative on the left right now. They are absolutely winning the debate on the left, which is why virtually no one of any position of power or prominence on the left is willing to get up and say anything against this if they're elected. Now, every once in a while, you have people like uh, Anna uh, Kasparian. Yep. Um, Anna Kasparian, you have Bill Maher, you have some people within the arts and entertainment who are getting up and saying, this has gotten ridiculous. But they had to sit across from Ben Shapiro to do that. Yes. 
right? And, and so you do see it within, so this is why you also have like the intellectual dark web, which is composed of people like Brett Weinstein and others who, again, left of center, but because they hold to certain core values with respect to freedom of inquiry and freedom of speech, right? They see the problems with this manifestation taking place on the left, but it is, it is not French. It is no longer fringe on the left. Okay. Let's, let's go ahead and uh, watch through the uh, rest of this okay. and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of wrap up. When people have a victim mentality for a prolonged period of time, this eventually just starts to become a part of their personality. The next problem is that victimhood makes people easily manipulated, which is why powerful elites love to push it so much and why they don't really mind using studies that are using questionable forms of data to prove it. The core of victimhood, that it's not my fault, also quite heavily implies that it's somebody else's fault. This creates an opening for an authoritarian demagogue to come in and divide people into groups of oppressors and oppressed as a way of gaining support. This can easily lead to justifications for genocide, which is ironic in a twisted sort of way that fake victimhood can actually lead to real victimhood. Under the hood of nearly every genocide, you will find an us versus them mentality, often justified with a victim narrative beating the drums. If a person in a position of authority, especially a position which controls the intellectual institutions and the media, decides they want to get rid of a certain group of people, it is a lot easier than you might think for them to generate false evidence that said group of people is victimizing everyone else. With this victim perception fallacy, along with the circularity it tends to create, being an easy go-to way to pull said evidence out of basically thin air. I also want to say that people who keep up with my posts about potential future content I plan to make may be aware that I am working on a video that is about refuting tankies on their denial of the Holodomor in extreme detail. Let's just say there's a reason I decided to release this video that you are watching right now first. Although it is important to point out that it's not always genocide as the goal. Sometimes it's a little bit more simple than that, and a little bit less evil than that. Sometimes elites are just trying to deflect blame off of themselves. For example, the false harassment and victimhood narrative that came with Gamergate. To make a long story short, it was just journalists trying to deflect from their misbehavior by casting everybody who called out that misbehavior into the misogyny's box. Which, by the way, that long-awaited airplay video is out, in case anybody was wondering. It's a bit long and starts out a little disconnected, but by the end, everything is tied together quite nicely. Anyways, the last consequence is more of just an individual one. Victimhood does not help you. Unless you are aiming to be a professional victim grifter and make an actual career out of being a victim, taking on a victim mentality will generally make you less successful in nearly all measures of life. And the reason this happens is pretty darn simple, really. When people do not have a victim mentality, it means they look at themselves first when experiencing failure and think about how they can improve and move on and do better next time. This is why a huge red pill is realizing that the strategy of self-blame and reflection is actually extremely empowering, because it means that your go-to response to problems is look for how you can personally find a solution to that problem and what you can do to improve upon finding that solution. However, with the victim mentality, this is absolutely not the case. The serial victim will simply blame the world around them, and then seethe, cope, and mauled instead of looking for a solution to their problems. Or worse yet, look to a victim-grifting political demagogue who promises to use big government to solve all their problems for them. Such as the lovely fixed pie fallacy. Yeah man, the reason you have less is because other people have more, therefore you need to vote for more taxes and bigger government. Brilliant solution. So what's the con- Yeah, so- <laughs> do, do we want to let him play the conclusion? Because yeah, it's only like another minute. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Conclusion here. Well, the main thing I want to first point out is that I am not saying that prejudice based on visible traits doesn't exist in human society. Of course it does. Tribalism is very obviously a thing. 
However, the solution to said tribalism will almost certainly not be found in its amplification. Anyone who tries to sell you that is either a massive grifter or a fool or possibly both. The main point here that I am making is that the prevalence of this prejudice is very likely being overstated due to the over-reliance on anecdotal evidence based on subjective experiences of said prejudice, aka this victim perception fallacy, as people are not actually capable of knowing whether they are being mistreated based on their identity group or not, and can be easily led to see mistreatment where it is not actually present. The harsh reality is that much of the grievance industry and the political victimhood demagoguery we see in current year is being largely fueled by bad research which is then propagated through propaganda mills. And all I'm really doing here is calling that propaganda out. Nothing more, nothing less. So thanks for watching. Yeah, so again, he didn't he didn't hit on it too much here. There's actually another video by Jordan Peterson. If you if you just go on YouTube and look for Jordan Peterson and victim mentality, he actually has one where it, he he talks more about how it actually leads to genocide. Um, and, and he, and he explains the process for, for what takes place. And, and one of the, a lot of people will look at that and think that maybe that's hyperbolic language. Let me explain something. He's not suggesting that all victim mentality leads to genocide. He's not suggesting that all victim mentality leads to widespread societal chaos and consequences across the board. What he's saying is, is that when it reaches a certain inertia within a society to the point where the society itself is fostering and encouraging it, right? Because there's always some degree, there's always individuals with victim mentalities. Um, but when it becomes celebrated within society as opposed to something that we we kind of stamp down as either gaslighting or, um, or self-destructive behavior or whatever else it might be, when we start to reward it, um, you, you get into a situation very, very quickly where people start to be divided into oppressor, oppressed, haves, haves, nots, um, victims and victimizers. And, and what this provides the, is something far more dangerous than just a grift. What it provides is moral justification for violence directed at the people in the other category. Because if you're oppressed, well, then the only way for you to be oppressed is because someone is actively oppressing you. If you're a victim, right, and you describe yourself that way and you describe society as constantly victimizing you, well, then somebody is responsible for that. And let me give, let me give a final example here that we're starting to see more and more within society. We've brought this up in previous episodes. When somebody says words are violence, and I'm not talking about someone verbally threatening you. When somebody says that the expression of an opinion that they find inconvenient or problematic is in itself violence or responsible for perpetrating violence, and that could be something as innocuous as saying men are men and women are women. Or and even just misgender, like giving the yeah. wrong pronoun. When they say that is violence, some people may be doing that because they're trying to create conditions where you feel uncomfortable about expressing your viewpoints. Other people are making that accusation because they want to commit acts of violence against you, but they want to put themselves in the position of defending or responding because we as a society, as individuals, we view aggressive violence very differently than we do defensive violence. So if by you expressing a viewpoint that they don't agree with, if that can now be defined as violence and they respond by punching you or beating you with a stick or shooting you in the face, they can say with, with all moral sin, um, sin, um, sincerity, I was just responding to a violent attack. And if you don't think that is where this is headed, look around the world. 
Look, look at some of the riots that have broken out within the United States. Look at, and, and, and you can find historical examples that are not just from the left, by the way. You can also find right-wing historical examples of this as well. When you adopt this sort of victim mentality and when the society as a whole and political leaders or what they describe as demagogues then capture that and push that, they can then rally people toward actions which are not just geared toward peaceful political change, but actually committing acts of violence. And, and the reason why it's so dangerous when people get up there and say words are violence is because they are laying a philosophical groundwork to be able to commit acts of violence against you and, again, feel morally justified in doing so because, after all, they were just defending themselves from you the oppressor, the victimizer, the have, whatever else it might be. And history is full of examples where this mentality is used. And again, the reason why it's so dangerous is not because people are doing it out of a sheer sense of greed, right? They're not doing it just out of a, out of a pure quest for power. Once you have convinced people that they are morally justified in that action, they are far more likely to be able to carry it out and in fact, C.S. Lewis has one of the best quotes about this where he says it, 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 may be, it may be better in the long run to be ruled by you know, greedy industrialists rather than moral busybodies. He goes, because the greasy industrialist or the robber baron, at some time, their, their greed or their cupidity may be saked, right? It may, it may, be, it may come to a point where they, just, they don't feel a need to, to exercise or act on it with the same intensity that they previously had. But the moral busybody that torments you for your own good does so without end because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And that's the scary part about what we're seeing with this and how victim mentality and victimhood uh, fallacies are actually being used to perpetuate it and to build not only an, an army of people who feel this way, but to actually build a moral justification for the violence that can could very well happen as a result. And that's why we thought it was necessary. I, I want to say thank you to Mentis Wave. We'll, we'll put a, um, in the uh, description, we'll put a link to the original video that we went through today. So if you want to go back and just kind of look at it, obviously without our commentary um, or, or look at some of the other work that he does, like I said, I, I always say this is kind of a disclaimer. Whenever we show videos from someone here that we think has done a good job, it doesn't mean that we automatically endorse everything that they've ever done on their page. We don't, we don't know them. But when I see somebody that I think has done some pretty good work and putting together a, a sound argument. Um, we we want to not only showcase that and, and offer our own analysis of it, but we also want people to be aware that these channels are out there. And, the, and if we think they're doing yeah. a good work, this is one. And again, what if alt hist is another one that we, that we really enjoyed. We didn't know him before we, we reacted to one of his videos. Yeah. But afterwards we were connected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think he's we've got, got some pretty good videos, it, it, you know, explaining some of these things. He, he, he likes to deconstruct a lot of like the intellectual fallacies that the left has. Like, for example, he has a video on what he calls the equity fallacy. He has another one about, you know, like, uh, tearing down, you know, like the, the idea that, oh, well, the right is too focused on culture wars. And, um, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's, he, yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting channel. Take a look at it. Yeah. Sir Grog, uh, I want to thank uh, Super Chat. Sir Grog said, Ugh, too many words. Brain hurts. Take my money and be well. Thank you, Sir Grog. I appreciate it. Appreciate the donation. I also appreciate your comments in, in the chat. And then we have another one from uh, David uh, Heald. He goes, AH use victim mentality as a weapon. I'm assuming he's talking to the, uh, the former leader of the National Socialist Party of Germany during the 30s and 40s. The Austrian painter. Yeah, yeah he the said Austrian Super painter. Chat wouldn't let him say the actual name. 
name. Yeah, well, well, just call him the Austrian painter, or just yeah, the yeah. So, uh, so a certain brutal, uh, certain brutal National Socialist dictator of Germany, mustache man around the World Who War II also era, definitely side with Hamas. Yeah, but but he's he's right. He did use victim mentality, and and one of the important things to understand about uh, victim mentality is that what makes it so pernicious and effective is because oftentimes there is an element of truth. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be an element of truth with respect to the individual's personal experience of the victim victimization that they've actually endured or experienced, or it can be by association, right? Like we see one of the biggest sources of victim mentality in the United States now is not because someone has been the, the you know, directly abused, but because they share certain characteristics right? Sometimes immutable characteristics, skin color, sex, whatever else with somebody else that was abused. And so therefore there's almost like this transference as a result. Um, And then on the other side of that, there's this transference of guilt. You look like somebody that abused my grandfather, you know, or, or my great, great grandfather. Therefore you're culpable because you share the same skin color because you share the same sex. And so you know, again, that's what makes that victim mentality and the abuse of it so horrific is that oftentimes there is some element of truth in there, but now it's been perverted in such a way as to achieve a different objective. We have another uh, super chat here from 11 Bravo. He said, on the flip side, I also refuse to apologize for problems I wasn't the cause of. I hate when people do that. Hold accountable those who are responsible. No, and yeah, 11 Bravo's right on that one. It's, you know, we had this, we had this issue uh, in the General Assembly where, um, there, there was a, gosh, something, I think it was, I think it was about like an 80 or 90 year old case within Culpepper where, um, a, a black man had been, um, they believe, and, and they believe with good justification, falsely accused of something. And what they wanted was for the current sheriff's department to apologize for something that the, you know, and a sheriff's department had done. I, again, I think it was around like 80 plus years ago. And, and the sheriff was willing to say, we're, we're absolutely willing to say that this was horrific and should not happen and, and the whole deal. Because, but we're not going to personally apologize for something that we didn't do. And some people were saying, like, what's so bad about just apologizing that this happened? It's like, well, because we know what your motivation is. And your motivation is not healing and redemption. Your motivation is to say, see, look, they admit their culpability. And then to be able to use that as a tool to go after them. And to achieve dominance. Yeah. And, and so, uh, again, like the goodwill, the goodwill has been trashed by people that were never seeking goodwill in the first place. They were seeking political power. And, and now most of us are onto the game at this point. And so e- even at a time where reasonable people might be able to sit down and say, you know, hey, I, I, I think this, what happened was horrible. No, that's not sufficient because, again, they don't want acknowledgement. Right, and they, and they don't they don't even want correction in the future. Um, they want the grievance. The grievance is where the power lies. The grievance is what provides the moral justification for the retribution and the revenge. Isaac said, "Oh crap, I'm super late to the stream. Hello, my fellow patriots. <laughs> Not to doomsday, but I think we are beyond philosophy and debate now. We are in the long march to violence now, but only one side refuses to get violent." So I, I, I again, I will. I will always say this, um, having, having fought in a war, uh, having seen what, what war and, and open violence does to a society, does to the innocent, um, I don't want to see that happen. Like part, part of what we do when we discuss this at this stage in development is, is to hopefully prevent things from actually turning violent. Um, and, and look, I still think we're at a point where 
yeah, you're always just one generation away from being able to drastically change the trajectory of a society. How are you raising your kids? Are you preparing them to be able to go into this environment? Like if you're, if you're going to send them to public school, are they prepared to go into it? If you're going to send them to a university, are they prepared to go into it? Do they actually understand? Do they, do they have the cognitive awareness of what's taking place? And, and are they, they strong enough in what they, are they strong enough in what they believe to either, you know, verbally combat this or to at least not be swayed and manipulated by it? And that's a question that you have to ask. And, and to some degree, there's so much you can do as a parent. And then ultimately, your kids have to, to be able to decide for themselves. But there's absolutely no question that parents can have a tremendous impact on this. And like I said, one generation of kids that, that growing up in strong families, um, are, are there going to be some that can grow up in ideal circumstances and still buy into this? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You have your own autonomy, your own will. Um, but my gosh, if, if we focused in more on understanding why, what is happening and why, and, and we stop pretending as if it's just the fringe, and we start recognizing that it has reached a certain degree of, of academic and social dominance, well, then that gives us what we need to be equipped to be able to fight back intellectually so that hopefully it doesn't get to a point where you have to fight back physically. Last super chat here and a great one to end the episode on. This is from Ellen. She says, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sound familiar? It does. I don't believe it, though. Really? I don't believe it, though. No. Um, I, I, think, I think words do hurt. Um, I, I, think a lot of the, I think a lot of the hurt that people are experiencing in society right now actually come not from physical abuse, but from a... a constant verbal abuse. And, and especially when you're talking about someone that doesn't have the awareness this is what I, I, we have a, a good friend running for school board here in Culpeper, Therese Matricardi. And, and she says, you know what? She goes, as much as we get told that we're the ones being divisive, never forget that we're not the ones that brought the battleground to the playground. They are. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and when she said that, I remember it just hitting me like, wow, she did a great job of explaining what's going on right now. We're not the ones that we're advocating, pushing our political ideology in the classroom or our, our theological um, positions in the classroom. We, we weren't doing this, right? But the other side was. And when we pointed out that, hey, some of this is inappropriate or not, or not age appropriate, at the very least, save it for a, a, certain, a certain age group, we got told we were being divisive. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why is there such a push to increasingly move this in to not just your high school, not just your middle school, to your elementary school? Because one side of this understands that if you control the education and the upbringing of a generation, they don't even need to be your kids. They absolutely don't need to be your kids. They can go ahead, they can abort all their babies and then just indoctrinate yours. The left survives off of colonizing the minds of children because the left usually doesn't reproduce nearly as fast as conservatives do for that matter. So it's 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 like a virus where they reproduce, the, they just This is why the left is so kids. obsessed with with education because the only way that the left is, and again, it, it all goes back to the university system and you could also argue the public school system, but like the left is only able to succeed because they're able to indoctrinate other people's kids. If no, the left didn't have, if, if, if the cathedral didn't exist and the left just had no control over education whatsoever, we, we wouldn't. We wouldn't even be having this discussion right now. Absolutely, because they're sterilizing their own kids. They're they're making sure that their generate their bloodlines don't continue. I mean, between offing their own babies 
and sterilizing their offspring uh, with, you know, puberty blockers and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Your kids are all they got. So they've got to be in the school system. Well, this is, this is, look, I would, I'll just say this much. It's, there, there's a there's a reason why one side of this argument seems to understand um, the importance of education, the importance of bringing up children. Um, again, even if it's not their own, and our side better get better get on board because the, here's the good news. Right? We, we always do this instead of being doom and gloom like so many conservative channels out there. The good news is that when you do take the time to foster good relationships with your children, you can combat this. And you can combat this intellectually. You can combat this generationally without having to resort to, to, you know, violence, which is that I don't want that, right? I do not want that. It's not that I'm not aware that it's possible. It's not that I'm not capable of it. I, I went to war twice. I understand what engaging in, in violent conflict looks like. You don't want it here. So let's do everything we can to make sure that it doesn't happen. I'm, I'm going to address one more thing because I have to. Uh, Isaac Gorski says, I was an 11 Bravo in the 82nd Airborne, second of the 325 in Mosul, 2017, war as hell. Mosul in 2017, yeah, was really bad. I also want to say I was also an infantryman in the second of the 325, and I've got the tattoo to prove it. Oh, <laughs> um, you should I show was, it. I was in, show uh, it, honey. No, <laughs> I, I, was in, I was in Alpha Company. Uh, second of the 325 as an AG and a 240 gunner. And then I was in the uh, scout platoon as a, uh, a a scout, a scout sniper, and then a uh, scout team leader over there before I, I went to the uh, 25th. But that was a long time ago. You're you're a lot younger than me, dude. I was there uh, 98 to 2000 is when I was in the 82nd and specifically the second of 325. But it's always, always good to see another Falcon. So once again, I want to thank everybody for joining us. I know um, some of these topics can be, uh, again, a little bit heavy, um, but... That's why we do them. We do them to hopefully provide some more information and also to provide access to other channels out there that we think that are doing a good job of explaining things in a logical, rational, uh, data-driven way. Um, you know, hopefully we're doing a good job of that as well. But once again, thank you for everyone for joining. Thank you for the questions and the comments in the chat. Please consider uh, joining the community chat. There's a link in the description. And also, once again, we really appreciate the uh, sponsorship from uh, Good Ranchers. If you want to look, if you're looking for a way to support the show, a great way to do it and a great way to uh, support yourself too. And a, and a great, wonderful, healthy diet, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. You'll get $15 off your order. Plus if you sign up for one of those subscriptions, you get to pick which free meat is going to arrive every month with that subscription. Could be top sirloin, could be wild caught salmon, could be organic chicken, and it could be, um, could be uh, bacon. That's right. Bacon. The thing that goes, makes everything better. Bacon just makes everything better. All right, so go ahead and check that out. Also, they have gift boxes available now, too, if you're looking for gifts for people that are impossible to shop for. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode.